Hey, what's up, people? Before we get started on season three, I just needed to say thank you for the love and support you have shown over the past two years with the first two seasons. It has been incredible seeing the love and response I get from you on the internet, when I'm walking around the town, all the local people that have helped me get my podcast to this first level. I will never be able to say thank you enough for all of it. But now we get to go on good stuff. Thank you for being patient with the new name and the new logo, but Refuse to Fail is officially here. Same quality podcast guests, same incredible stories, new name and a new logo that looks a bit nicer. That is the only change. So season three gets underway with this episode because I knew the second I finished recording it, it was too good not to put at the front. I wanted everybody to hear it as soon as possible. Today I am joined by reigning triple world champion, European champion, Paralympic gold medalist, Paralympian swimmer extraordinaire, Tully Kearney MBE. She has had some ups and downs in her career and she has done it all with a smile on her face and she's never let it defeat her. And these next couple of hours are really going to show you how incredible this person truly is. She is nothing short of extraordinary. So I don't want to hold this up any longer. Refuse to Fail, Season 3, Episode 1 with Tully Kearney, MBE, is a go. Let's play this brand new intro that I worked on. I'm looking forward to this and I had to start off with a banger, so I chose the biggest and best I could get. I have got... Tokyo 2020 gold and silver medalist, reigning triple world champion, European champion times two. She just is a proper inspiration. 13 gold medals, seven silver, five bronze. The list goes on and on and on. Tully Kearney, MBE, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I'm all right. Thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm, so, I'm great. Sunday night, we're sitting having a chat. It doesn't get much better than that. I've cut red onions, so it looks like I've been crying for 20 minutes, but we've been discussing that off camera, and that's how. The trick is, see, I talked to all these amazing people, so now I'm meal prepped, so now I'm sat here chopping onions before we start a podcast, trying to get healthy, and it's it's backfiring, but enough about me, we're here to talk about you, what have you been up to this week, how's life in the Tully Kearney household? Yeah, it's alright, this week was my first week back to training post-concussions, it's been pretty rough, oh, no. not the greatest week, but hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> How did you get a concussion? Uh, kind of a funny story. <laughs> Um, I went out for dinner with a friend and we're both wheelchair users and like being in the city centre of Manchester, it's kind of crazy to park. So we're like, I oh, will just take one car. So he like came and picked me up when we parked in the city centre. And I've been out like in his car multiple times and I've always, I use a power assist on my wheelchair. So okay. I was sat in the boot of his car to put the power assist on my chair. And I've done it hundreds of times in his car. And for some reason, this one time he forgot I was there and he closed the boot on my head. <laughs> I'm sorry, I really should laugh, but when you started off this way, that's not how I expected it to end. I thought there was going to be some traumatic night out story, and your your friend just accidentally dropped the boot on you. Yeah. Oh, you. He must have felt really guilty. I'd feel I'd feel traumatized if Tully Curry was in the boot of my car. I hit her with the boot. I would. I don't even know what I'd do. I definitely wouldn't be recording the podcast. I'd be hiding from the public. That's for sure. Yeah, he has been. Uh... Very sorry. He's been like phoning me every day to make sure I'm all right. <laughs> yeah. I definitely won't be sitting in anyone's car boot anytime soon. <laughs> no, you, you, that's a that's a Travis Dixon poor guy. I you, I can understand his worry. I'd be sending a lot of I'm sorry texts. <laughs> oh, that's I, this is how this podcast is going to go. I'm loving because I was never expecting a story like that when we started today. So that's great. But before we get into the life and story of Tully County, my lovely listeners need to learn a bit more about you. 
So what we do for that is we have a little section called the quick fires, and this is literally just a yes or no, this or that. Really straightforward. So for example, the first one is always a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Okay. Tea. Tea. Straw, you're the first one. I think everybody else I spoke to seems to be running on fumes. You must have it together because everybody else is drink, drinking coffee trying to stay awake. So you must have your you must have your stuff together. I think yeah, I think swimmers are just kind of a different breed where uh, we don't need coffee to get through. <laughs> you you're sick of fluids, you're like, I spent my whole life in water, I just want rid of it. <laughs> okay, right. A night out or a night in, which one are you more likely to go for? Night in. I love that. Uh, question following that. If you're to sit there and watch the telly on a night in, are you a t- are you a series or a movies kind of person? Ooh. Depends on what mood. I'd probably say more likely series. I love that. I love that. I've been getting into the boys recently. If you've not watched that, you should get involved. It's pretty. You've, you've not watched it. No. Oh, special, incredibly violent, but really, really funny. Right, if you had to get rid of one tomorrow so it could not exist in the world, would you get rid of sport or dogs? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, that's a horrible question. I've literally got, like, my dog's face before he died on, on uh, my T-shirt. Like, you can't ask me that. <laughs> uh, we'll, give it, we'll give it an indecisive. We'll give it... Can, it, can it be a certain sport? Does it have to be all sport? Swimming. <laughs> no, um... Oh no, that's horrible. <laughs> you can't pick a sport you don't play, that'd be easy. Uh I don't want to get rid of dogs, but I can't get rid of my sport. <laughs> we'll go we'll go with neither. You'll have to keep both. I'll let you I'll let you off because you answered the you gave the concussion story, so you get your one free pass. <laughs> okay, if you're in the car and you're trying to get to somewhere, are you more likely to listen to the playlist or the radio? Radio. I like that. I'm the first radio listener in a while. I'm a big radio fan. Right. Socks and sliders, are they socially acceptable? Yes or no? No, no not a fan. <laughs> right. If we're trying to get something organised, are you more likely to text the group or are you the one that gets the FaceTime on the go and says, let's get this organised? Text. Love that. Sweet or salted popcorn in the movies? Salted. Nice. Twitter or Instagram, if you had to get rid of one tomorrow? I'd get rid of Twitter. Lovely. If you could be in one universe, would you rather be in the Star Wars universe or the Lord of the Rings universe? Gotta be honest, I've not watched either. <gasps> Tell you. There's there's been a few, so I can't spoil it because you're the first episode of the season, but there's a few that haven't seen them either. So some bonus content. I'm gonna have to get the group together and we're gonna have to have a watch along and we can review. Cause I'm telling you, you're missing out. What's okay, we'll try this one. What's your go-to Disney movie? Under One Dalmatians, I guess. That's Disney. It's a great film. Great, great film. Do you have a favourite quote that you like to live by? This has kind of changed over the years. Because um, okay. I used to really like, like, if I don't try hard today, someone else will. However, that doesn't really work with my life anymore. <laughs> so... Uh, I quite like like if you if you can see it, you can be it. That's kind of the one that I'm. Angry I like about. that. I like both of them. You could you should you could keep both of them, but I quite I like the new one. That's the good one. If you can see it, you can be it. That's very inspirational as well. That's that was was that the the motto for the Paralympics a few years ago? No. 
probably. Just, it was like one of the taglines they used. I can't remember. Well, either way, I like. It. I think it's really good, and I do think it is a great point. I think there's a lot of situations where that is true. Smart. Right. What is your go-to fast food if you're having just like a nice lazy day and you're like, I don't want to cook? What's your favorite go-to takeaway fast food place? Um. Probably say Indian. There's like I'm, I'm quite restricted because I can't eat onion or garlic or like. Oh no. So, but there is there's one place um that we know like back in Birmingham that's local and they actually make me a curry without onion or garlic. So it's amazing. I love that. I love that. You you Birmingham originally? Um. So I, I was born in Nottingham and then we moved around a lot because my dad was in the army. But Fair. we settled in Birmingham when I was about seven. All right. Oh, so, like, my whole career was starting in Birmingham. I'm I'm Solly Hull, so I'm familiar with that neck of the woods, right. and I can appreciate the fact you like a good curry from there because there's a lot of good curry in that area. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Well, there you go. That's quick fire, true quick fires done now. We just need to do the one, which is one of the questions I gave you a bit of time for. What is your favorite piece of memorabilia you've managed to collect on your sporting journey so far? So this was kind of a hard one because. Stuff I got from Tokyo is obviously quite meaningful, but actually one of my favourite things was I went to the World School Games in Sao Paulo in 2014 and we swapped kits. So I actually have a Brazilian team, like it's kind of like a tracksuit top, like a zip top. And I actually, that's, cool. that's probably my favourite because it's just really cool. That's, I like that because there are not things you can go out and buy either. Like football yeah. kits, you can kind of go and buy new ones, but the Brazilian swimming kit, that's pretty unique. Yeah. I love that. that I mean, really it, cool changes every year as well so every year the patterns are, and the brands mm. sometimes are different so it's like it's quite unique to that one year that's cool i love it. i love it when people talk to their swapping kits swapping kits must be the best part of being a professional athlete yeah do you do you now do that now as well do you like try like run around at like the in in the call room and you run around like does anybody want to swap kit <laughs> not, i not need, in the I need some memories <laughs> usually like at the end um <laughs> but the issue is like as the years have gone on we we get less and less kit we get less race suits less caps so people are less like are more reluctant to want to change because if they rip a cap like so mm -hmm. the biggest thing about making a big swim team is getting your name on your swimming hat right. and if you only get three of them and like they do rip so like you rip one and you've already given one or two away then like that's why people are like oh well i don't really want to give one because we only got two or three this year so it is harder now so what you're saying is we need to find a way to make sure that you guys get more kits so you can do a bit more collection swapping Right, so if there's one thing the higher ups take away from this, we're needing at least seven or eight swim caps per per meet. That's what I'm learning here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got the vote of approval. You're not going to argue with MBE, are you? I'm not. I'm not doing it. <laughs> right. Speaking of that, I'm I'm looking forward to this answer now. Then, what's a piece of memorabilia you want to add to your collection? Uh, I think one thing that would be quite cool um, is that I know that some of the other swimmers have had. Um, They've had like rings or necklaces made with like the Panabit logo. So I think after Paris, that'd be quite a cool thing to add. I don't know if that counts as memorabilia. Yeah, I think so. You're getting it made in a sporting occasion. That counts. Yeah. Plus, it'll be something you can wear all the time as well if it's a ring or a necklace. Like, it'll be something you don't have to take off all the time. So that'll be good. Yeah. That's, I love that. A ring to commemorate Paris. We'll go there. Or a necklace. But we'll go with it. There we are. Memorabilia is quick fires done and dusted. Nothing too strange there. Nobody's going to call you out and say, why are you getting rid of dogs? You're a, you're a, you're a sociopath. You've, you've kept both. You've played the field very well. But that's it. So now we get to talk into the good bit. We get to talk about you and your story coming up. And now, how does swimming find you? So 
Actually, before we talk about that, so please correct me if I'm wrong here. I want to make sure I get this worded the right way because it's so important. To, but I don't like using the words that sometimes go a bit different. So you were born with cerebral palsy, I'm correct. Mm -hmm. So can you just give a quick definition of what cerebral palsy is for my listeners here that may not be aware of this condition? So cerebral palsy is basically a brain injury from lack of oxygen that occurs shortly before, during labour or shortly after, within the first year after birth. Um, obviously, because it's a brain injury, depending on where in the brain's damage, how severe it is, cerebral palsy is a massive spectrum. So there are different types of cerebral palsy and also everyone's affected completely differently. So for me, I have spastic diplegia, which basically means I have very tight muscles in my lower body and I have weakness on my left side. So I've always struggled with like walking, running, jumping, things that need you to be able to control your muscles, basically. Okay. Okay, so then that came through there. So while you were, you said you were born with that in the first couple of years, so did you did that affect your affinity for sport? Did you find swimming quite early on, or when was it you were first introduced to the prospect of swimming? So I've got an older brother, and I mm -hmm. always wanted to keep up with him. I was always that annoying little <laughs> sister that just followed him everywhere, and he did athletics and football and like low. We've always been really active, but I just physically couldn't do it. And he was part of a swimming club. Okay. And I used to spend like most of my evenings um, on poolside just watching him. And when we moved to Birmingham, he joined Water Swim Club. And the after about a year, the coach approached me when I was around eight and said, like, do you want to join in? And at first, like my mum has always been very protective and very nervous about allowing me to do things. And she was like, oh, I'm not really sure. Like, And I think she didn't want me to try it and then feel de defeated that I couldn't do it. Um, but for me, like she let me go and try and I just kind of fell in love with it. Like in the water, I just, I didn't feel disabled. I can move around freely. I didn't need help. No one stared at me. I wasn't like treated like the disabled kid. I just fit in with everyone else. And it was really nice to be able to keep up like kids my own age and just be part of a group where everyone is treated the exact same and no one's like the disabled kid. Hmm. I love it. That's really, um, so how did that change to keeping you like you said, you then felt like part of the group. Was that just because the muscle sort of didn't play that much of a role as it did in an athletic, like a track and field athletics type thing? Or Yeah, I think like because it's not weight-bearing, it was mm -hmm. much easier. Um, and I think I've just obviously, like my mum was a swimmer. She was a national champion in breaststroke. And I think that's obviously helped my brother was a swimmer. And I think I just, I was very lucky that I just have that natural ability to be able to hold, hold my position in water. And mm -hmm. um, for me... It kind of became my escape that if I was frustrated about my disability or something had happened and I was like, someone bullied me or, you know, t was mean about my impairment, that I'd get in the water and all my worries would just disappear. Oh, I love that. Did you did you get like a nice little bit of satisfaction if you did have one of these unfortunate situations where another kid might give you a bit of grief for you then just like, okay, three lengths in the pool, I'll smoke you. And then, like, you know, yeah. take your insults and turn around and go. <laughs> Yeah, I actually like, especially at, um, like in school at PE, like mm -hmm. I actually hated it because I just couldn't do anything. So the only thing I could do was swimming, and that was the one thing that I could get in and just like just go so much quicker than everyone else. And everyone was just shocked, and I was like, "Yeah, that I was just it. like one thing that I loved." I love it. I also think that would be the most badass response ever if somebody started giving you a bit of grief and you replied with, "Let's see who the quicker racer is in the pool." There, I'd be like. This, this woman's either going to smoke me at, at, at swimming 
Bush is going to drown me. So either way, I'm <laughs> I'm losing here. But that's that's a really badass response, and I love I love that attitude from you to have that from such a young age as well. That's a really mature thing you've mm. had to grow up with as well. You mentioned I was going to talk about this later because I did I did know your mum was a national swimmer actually, but I think this fits in quite nicely, and it's sort of like we're talking about the family the family dynamic you have there. Now that you are this incredible champion with more medals than I've possibly had hot dinners, how does your mum ever still give you advice? And your mum, like, is there still that debate? Your mum's like, well, I was national champion. And you're like, mum, have you seen the mantelpiece? Like, does she ever try to give you, like, tips and tricks? And you're like, I think yes. I've got this, mum, I'm all right. All the time. <laughs> and she's like, oh, maybe you should ask about this. Maybe you should do this. And I'm like, mum, I know what I'm doing. It's all right. <laughs> Mum, I don't know if you saw my highlights on YouTube, but there was there was like comfortable seconds between me and the next player. So, because I was I was watching your highlights when I was doing research for this. Obviously, we were meant to for the listeners. We were meant to discuss this the other week. But obviously, Tully's injury caused a bit of a setback. So I'm I'm not going to make anybody do my hear my draining voice with a concussion. So I'll give her a week to recover. But your highlights, I can like listeners. If you if you want to learn more about Tully, go and watch her highlights. She is aquatic at this point like you are lightning through the water it is terrifying i reckon you could probably swim faster than i could run like that's how that's how impressed i was watching this in the in a non-condescending way it was magnificent to watch so you talk about the family your brother obviously said you were following your brother around for that how did then the swimming come into tully kearney the person we've said how it was a bit of a relief and it made you feel not like you were part of a different sort of categorization you were one of everybody else and stuff like that so then did that then become part of the swim club and how did the swim club help you branch out as well when did you start competing at swimming it was at a young age or was it just as you grew up yeah so in swimming I think the rules have changed a bit now uh, but back then this was many years ago when you were eight you could do um like the arena leagues which is kind of it's kind of hard to explain but it's it's like a team competition. So you go for the team and every race scores points for the team. So it's like that okay. it's not individual. It's like for everyone. And then if your team wins, you can move on to the next round and next round and, until you get to the finals. Um, so when you're, when you were eight, you could do that. So like my first few races were just like little, uh, like tiny little 25 meter pools that were like four lanes with all these clubs. Um, and, and then when you're nine, was when you could actually do an individual race. So mm. my first race was actually at Ponds Forge in Sheffield, which is like my favourite pool. Sure. Um, I'd spent a few years watching my brother race there. Right. Um, and it was actually quite interesting because he was supposed to be racing with me, but the week before he broke his ankle. So like as a kid growing up, up the street, there used to be a cake shop. So like when he was racing between his races, I would walk with my dad up to the cake shop and get cakes while he was racing. <laughs> I remember like this time being really annoyed because he got to go and get cakes at the cake shop and I had to race <laughs> I love that you're, you're the only thing you're focused on is like the jammy dodger and everyone's like Tully you're really good at swimming keep swimming and you're like but I do I do want to go for a cake <laughs> I think like at that age I wasn't really bothered about racing it was more like I just really enjoyed swimming and training whereas I hadn't really got the concept of like racing against other people because I just didn't really care okay I understand that. Yeah, it takes a while to find that competitive sort of mindset to something. Mm. Especially because I don't know what it was like where you were growing up in terms of sports available. So where I'm from, it's very much the boys play rugby and the girls play hockey. Everything else is like a PE subject. It's kind of a bit of fun. It's something you do at school. There's not really competitiveness to it. But ironically, I think we've never had somebody from Scotland play or we've never had somebody from our town represent Scotland at hockey or rugby. 
so it shows how well we do in our competitive edge but that's a story for another day but so how did you when did that sort of competitiveness start to hit you as this swimming can take me somewhere was that was that when you started doing these individual races at nine at nine years old or did it come a bit older when you I'm actually in a competition now no it actually took quite a long time because even like well, up to like when I was 11, 12, I actually was pretty terrible. Like I wasn't good at swimming at all. <laughs> and I think I was just still trying to figure out, like with cerebral palsy, it's really hard to plan a movement. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, like, for example, like, you know that, oh, I've got to move my arm in this certain way to get a swimming stroke. But actually being able to plan it in your brain of how exactly it needs to move is really difficult. And for me, like, if I can't see where my arms are, I have no idea what they're doing. So okay. it's it took me quite a few years to like to learn certain things like tumble turns. And I was talking to my mum about this the other day because I don't think it'd be allowed now. But the only way that I learned to turn is that the coach was in the water with me and literally forced my head underwater and pulled my body into a turn position multiple multiple times until I actually until my body learned what it is to be in that position, how to get into it. Okay. And I don't think I'd have learned otherwise, but yeah, I don't think nowadays you'd be able to physically manhandle a kid to get them to tumble turn. <laughs> you say that, but at the same time, it's like it's it's, it's a way you could look at it. Cause you look at that as really good coaching of understanding your athlete of going. I, I know that she has cerebral palsy. I know that this affects her. I suppose the brain wave to the to the muscle because, like you said, you need to see your arm to physically feel like you're in control of it, but. But then, like you said, yeah, convincing somebody that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing when you jump into a pool with a nine-year-old and start dunking them is probably a, a tough sale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, let's. Well, if if we ever struggle, we'll just go through your medal history, and then that might save the coach a bit of trouble. Be like, it works. <laughs> just case yeah. in point, it works. <laughs> That's. I love. I love hearing these stories, and then especially when you talk about cerebral palsy and how it affects your arms. So. Did that was that something you really had to then learn as like a muscle memory point because like you say it affects the mu- i'm trying to make sure i do do your words justice of how to explain this so i'm not misrepresenting it but you have that thought of it's kind of so so like a person like myself i just think i want to pick up for example this glass of water here i don't really have to think about it i just kind of do it do you have to do a sort of like forced effort for that as in i want to pick up that and i need to think about doing it yeah i do it's not as bad on my right side but especially my left side it's kind of like the the messages from the brain get kind of mixed up they don't fully they get there but they get there a bit slower and it's not the full message so it's the movement isn't as good so it's a bit shaky or like not quite coordinated it's it's so it's so i love hearing when people come through these sort of adversities and really hone their skill and then like i say you're now well, I counted at least 25 medals in the first 20 minutes of doing the research for you. So I kind of stopped after that. I thought I'm going to run out of pages and like, this is a thick notebook. And then obviously like there's a lot of, <laughs> I ran out of pages for the nose, but there we go. Um, yes, yeah, so the swimming came through. To, let's talk about age 14, because that was your first international competition in 2011. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was Berlin, I believe. Yeah, so that was... Only about a year after getting classified for the first time. So I went for classification at 13. Because okay. like at first, we kind of knew of Paris sport and Paris swimming, but I didn't know if I was eligible for it and I didn't know how to get into it. Um, and then we learned that generally, like each area has like a disability squad. So we West Midlands had one that met once a month. So I started going to them and then I was able to get classified. And yeah, it was kind of crazy. At my first competition after getting classified, I was approached by... Um, 
who's a British women coach at the time, who's now actually our head coach. I've known him all these years. Um, and he kind of approached me and I got put on the talent program. And then that, I think this is the only time they've ever done that is that year they had an athlete on podium potential. So there's like three tiers. Um, it's mm-hmm. called something different now, but back then it was um, the bottom tier was talent. And then it was podium potential and podium. Um, so I was put on the talent program and there was an athlete on the podium potential program. And they decided to move mid-year, like mid-season, which is never heard of, move him up to podium. So they moved me from talent into his spot on podium central, um, which meant that I was then selected for the German Open in Berlin. Oh, wow. So these these three titles that you say they've now changed now, is that sort of, does that dictate how much attention you sort of get as well in terms yeah. of where we want to send you and how we want to sort of marshal you? Because I imagine a head coach of the, or this British swim coach you have, this now head coach, has a lot of sort of people he needs to sort of kind of profile, I suppose is probably the best way to say yeah. about that. The, so the, when, what okay. was talent is like a power academy now, and it's generally like the under 18s, like the younger ones, trying to get okay. them into it and trying to kind of, so for the ones at the minute in the power academy, they're not really focused on Paris, they're focused on LA. So they're not focused on the next games, they're the ones after because they're quite young and they need, um, they still need a lot of work and a lot of skills and learning how to be at international events and all the nutrition stuff and everything they need to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's so interesting. I love hearing about how I've been saying I love hearing about this. I think that shows my excitement for this because I love it when I get a topic. I love it when I get a topic of something I know relatively little about. Because one, I get to ask really silly questions and I'll be like, so swimming, what is that? And then but it's, it's so interesting hearing about how all these behind the scenes things come about and like you say you get chucked in these programs so how did it feel when you got put on to uh, podium potential because I assume when they how did they sort of not sell it to you but how did they explain it to you when they took you in and said we've seen your classification we've seen how you swim we believe there's talent here this is the pro like, this is the project we want to put you on and then moving you up how did that call go oh to be honest it's so long I can't remember but I think we got a phone call and then an email um but I was just really excited, like getting to go to Berlin. Um, I was just super excited, like the first time like away from my family, like on my own, getting to race in a foreign country. And then I turned up at Berlin and surprise, surprise, my mum had flown without telling me she was in Berlin to watch me. And I was like, mum, this is like my first thing where I'm like on my own and you turned up to Berlin. <laughs> that's good support. You can't hold it your mum for flying to Berlin. No, that's true. But I was like, you know, like I was one of the youngest. There was a 13 year old and then me who just turned 14 like the week before. And we were like the youngest on the team. So I was like, you know, trying to act cool and like not be the the young kid that's got their mum with them. Was your mum, so did your mum join? I think your mum was just there as a spectator. Like she wasn't. Yeah, like they're, they're not allowed. Like they're not allowed in the same flights. They're not allowed in the same hotel. So um, they're not really allowed to come and see you. So the way that the pool is, the pool's really cool in Berlin. It's actually one of my favourites. Um, Sheffield's always going to be my, my absolute favourite at Ponsford. Sheffield, Sheffield's home, but Berlin's yeah, a favourite, yeah. yeah. But Berlin's like a really nice pool. And the way that like the upstairs is, is that all the swimmers are on one side and all the spectators are on one side in the stands, but you can walk like across. All so right. I could just go over and see her, but I didn't like, so I, I could see her, but I just, you know, chose to stay with the team. Pretty cool, yeah, pretty cool. You're, you're young and with your friends like you're you're on you're on a you're on a holiday like a very serious one but you're on a holiday so i think like that was back then i didn't really realize how serious it was like i didn't think of it like i know over the years a lot of people have been like well you know this is your job you get paid for it um <laughs> and that's quite a hard thing to concept especially at 14 
that you, you know you're paid to be an athlete like this professional suppose he's a professional athlete but you're still a kid and mm-hmm. um that was kind of difficult for me and at that point like obviously I loved it like getting the kit getting that was my first time getting like actual race suits because race suit then they're more expensive now but even then I think they were 200 pounds so, like we were never going to buy them because I didn't need them um yeah but obviously when you race internationally you're expected to you're they're supplied for you so it was the first time getting like proper fast skin racing suits and like a hat with my name on and all this like so obviously it was really exciting but it hadn't really sunk in like how big this actually was mm-hmm. you were you said there that you were getting paid so was this I think you're on like a you're on the the GB Paralympic sort of athlete program yeah, so, at this point yeah the one like the talent program like mm-hmm. well not talent, that was when I was on podium central actually so the they've got different tiers and I think yeah. the I don't know if the Power Academy is still the same but on before when it was talent it was like 500 pounds a year so it was just to you know pay for like one or two costumes or like bags and goggles and stuff like that okay. and then when you're on so podium goes from it's kind of changed over the years but i think at the minute there's a a plus down to c and then it should be i think d to like f on podium potential so basically when you're in that program there's not only that one program that like classifies you but it's also there's a classification system on how much you actually earn so how much you get depending on how quick you are so it's generally based off world rankings. Like it might be world run and world number one plus a certain percent will get you into whatever category. But like for for A plus, you have to be like the gold medalist that season. So like if you like for example for me, like when I went to worlds and one, that means you're on the highest level of funding. Um, mm-hmm. If you get silver, you might be on B. If you get a bronze, you might be on C. Um, so it does change kind of every year sometimes. But basically, how well you perform and what your what ranking in the world is depends on how much money you get funding wise from lots you fund oh okay so it's a it's a performance-based aspect type thing yeah and then like you and like you say when you were there at 14 although you were technically getting money it's not like you're doing like you're not getting a a living wage type thing you're getting sort of like yeah you're getting you're getting like your expenses covered almost to an extent yeah it's Mm -hmm. almost enough to cover stuff that your parents would usually be forking out for (laughs) god god bless the bank of mum and dad that's one that's yeah. one consistent thing i've noticed with every podcast bank of mum and dad has had to get used to buy some oh, kit yeah. especially like like i know um for a long time my brother was quite envious and he still he still says that i'm the favorite child like one being disabled <laughs> and two being the younger one meant that <laughs> there's nobody your brother plays the disabled <laughs> card on you <laughs> he does he does all the time and like um but like i do need more support than him and yeah because he went, you know, when he, when we got to the age where we were at different clubs and he started playing water polo and we had to be at different pools. Like I was on the outskirts of Birmingham. He was like the other side of Birmingham. And my mom was like, I can't be in two places at once. So he would have to get lifts with people or get the train or get the bus. And he got really annoyed about that, that, you know, he had to become really independent and do a lot of stuff on his own because my mom was with me like almost 24 hours a day. Like she would take me to morning training and we'd get back at like half seven. She'd then go to work all day get home, have a quick dinner and then go to the pool and we'd be back at like 10 PM and then repeat it again. Yeah. So then being a single parent, like my brother didn't really get much attention. So he, he definitely did hold it against me quite a lot. And obviously right. it was a lot for him to to give up. But again, like my mum, my my mum I mean we did he got stuff he needed like for his sports that he did. But I think because I needed a bit more and more attention and support, I think it to him, it seemed like I got a lot more attention and more items and more things. 
Yeah, it's it's t- it must be tough as like a kid as well because like you don't you don't get the understanding you sort of get as you grow up type thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, you just you, you want everything to be like a level playing field. So yeah, poor, poor guy, bless him. But yeah, I can understand having to get the bus to the other side of Birmingham and you're like, oh, just once I just like a lift and I could have an extra twenty minutes in bed or something. Yeah, yeah. He's my brother's very like that's why he didn't he didn't commit to swimming and water polo like he's mm-hmm. it was a very good swimmer and an excellent water polo player but he's just not like me like he um he really wants to achieve the results and he wants to play he just doesn't want to train he doesn't want to put in the effort and he's he, he admits to that that he's lazy he doesn't want to put in the effort and he was never going to make it because he just refused to train poor guy i know i know how it feels to be fair there's many a day i've woken up on a monday morning and thought I'll just stay in bed today. So I, I resent, I relate to him probably more than I relate to you in terms of commitment and dedication. So I'm, I'm on the brother's side here. Not not pulling out the disabled card on you. That one, that one, he's firmly in his own bracket there. But other than that, <laughs> oh, I'm, this, I'm having so much fun. This is amazing. <laughs> so we okay. So we've now explained the whole process of the the podium, podium potential, talent, the GB sort of ranking system getting classified. How was it? How was that process of getting classified, though? Actually, like, how does that go about? Is it just somebody sort of watches you race, or do you have to sort of like I- explain your disabilities at the time? So it's quite a long process. So you have to get med- like before you even apply, you have to get medical evidence. So like your mm. specialist consultants, physios, like, um, and also have all the proof. So like MRI, if you've got cerebral palsy, it's brain injuries, so MRI scans. Yeah. Um. More recently, they've made me have a modified Ashworth scale test, which is kind of like it tests the spasticity. But um, since I was around 13, 14, which we can come on to later, I also have a different condition, um, Mm -hmm. dystonia. And the modified Ashworth scale isn't accurate if you've got cerebral palsy and dystonia because there's basically the spasticity is muscle tightness, but the dystonia can mask muscle tightness because it's a movement disorder, so it can stop movement. Okay. and cause contractures but it's not spasticity so when you do a modified Ashworth scale test on someone that has dystonia and spasticity it's really hard to tell if the lack of movement is from dystonia or spasticity oh, okay <laughs> not the most accurate test but for some reason they still like it but so after you've got all your medical stuff you then get given mm-hmm. a date if you're lucky um obviously like for when it comes up to big meets for someone like me who's not on a fixed review because my dystonia is progressive I don't get a fixed date. I usually like every two to three years, I have to be reviewed again to make sure I've not got worse. Um, mm. So for someone at my level, I'm obviously prioritized. So British women get a certain number of slots per competition and they obviously pick who's in, who they want to be done. So someone like an international level swimmer like myself will be done over someone that they're trying to get up into being an international swimmer. So they'll mm. prioritize medalists over people that, you know, are just coming into it. And, yeah, of course um, they, need, they need to keep you guys in the pool really don't they and that can yeah. delay that yeah yeah and they they can't risk like if we're not classified in our classifications up for review and it runs out we can't race so we yeah, have to be done that year uh and obviously you don't want to be done at a world championships or a european or a major meet because it's just a massive stress that's not ideal <laughs> and um and things can go wrong like you just never know the classification so on the actual day it's a bench test so it depends what disability you've got so for someone with short stature or with an, amp- an amputee, they measure either your height or the um, the side that you're a limb amputee on. Okay. And that will depend what classification you're in, how how long the stump is and how much function you've got will depend on obviously what classification you're in. But for someone with cerebral palsy, 
it's a in, like coordination function test. So active and passive movements, like how well do your joints move and how well can you move them? And after that, so they score every joint um, one to five. Five is complete normal movement and zero is no movement. Sorry, okay. yeah, zero to five. And so they score like every joint. And then you go in the water and they do a water test. So usually it's at least 100 meters of each stroke. Um, they get you to float to see if you can hold your body position still in the water on your front and your back. Sometimes they get you to do skull. Like if you can use your legs, they get you to leg kick, mm-hmm. um, drive, like literally looking at all the skills. And then they get you to do a bit quicker stuff to see what happens to your stroke when you're going at a quicker pace. Does it break down? Does it look better? Does it look worse? Um, and then obviously like your dive starts and what you would usually do, tumble turns, like literally looking at every part of your stroke. Wow. Um, and then they come up with a score. So there's you've scored on the bench test and you're scored in the water test. And basically the number puts you into your category. So like for physical mm-hmm. impairments, you've got S1 to S10, S1 being really severely disabled, S10 being very mild. So if you're an S10, you'd have a very mild impairment. You'd be at a very slight disadvantage to an able-bodied swimmer. So um, you might be a foot amputee or you might be missing your hand like or have a club foot, something that's like quite minor. Okay, um, so, that, so that's like the close of where if there was somebody you were to sort of not maybe see it right away, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's probably where they'd more likely be in the Paralympics type thing or at a meet yeah, in that S10 range. Yeah. 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 Um, and obviously the lower you go down, the more impaired the mm-hmm. swimmers are. So every single category has a like number bracket. So depending on how many numbers that you've scored overall will mm-hmm. depend on what category you're put in. And then they also watch you race. So usually there's three different categories. So S is for freestyle, okay. and like backstroke and flying. SB is for breaststroke and SM is for medley. So when you do all the strokes together. Mm-hmm. And so they, if you're having all the strokes, which majority of people do you, in racing, you then have to be watched. You have to do a medley event, a breaststroke event and a freestyle event. Um, oh. And then obviously they'll watch you race, check that nothing's different or nothing's changed or they don't want to review you. Um, and then it will be either confirmed or you'll be confirmed, but put on review for however many years. Jeez, oh, that's, <laughs> they, they get that down to an exact. So then they gave you the clarification of that sounds like an, a, a, an excruciating process that as well. Yeah. Once I think you said they checked the joint. How far did they just do shoulders and hips or do they go as far as like elbows, everything. wrists? Yeah, knees. fingers, wrists, knees, ankles, toes, like everything. Oh, Christ. <laughs> I, I find that it's weird the it's weird the mental images that you 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 think up when somebody explains these things to you. Cause I don't I've just got you, like the float like you said, you're floating in the pool track, and one guy's just there just holding your hands, just sort of bending your fingers around. <laughs> like, this, this, guy, this guy's a psychopath. Like, like go over, just try to float. <laughs> Well, they do. They don't do that while you're in the pool. <laughs> That's on the bench chest. But yeah, I, I, no, I hope not. I'm just it's just the way my brain works sometimes. It's it's a very long winded process. It usually takes a few hours, and they're always a few hours behind. You end up spending the whole day at the pool. Oh, terrible! Do, do you try to get yourself in first? Day? Like, I know at least if I'm first, you don't get to pick. Oh, I'd be I'd be gunning for it. I was like, I'll take the nine a.m. slot. Like, I'll get there for nine a.m. just so I know I'm not that waiting. Would be nice. <laughs> There we go. Another thing, higher ups. We need more sun caps, and Tully needs to go first on classification day because she wants to be out of there at a reasonable time. She's got things to do. <laughs> okay, right. We'll go back. We've we've done the classification. We're now there. This put you into 
correct me if I'm wrong, it was S4, SB5, and SM5? So currently, I'm an S5, SB4, uh, SM5, mm-hmm. uh, but it has changed. So mm-hmm. when when I first got classified, I was actually an S9. Was this um, at um, Berlin then? You were S9? Yeah. And okay. then over the years, my disability's gotten worse with the dystonia. Um, mm-hmm. So I've actually dropped. So now, yeah, now I'm an S5, but I have decided because I'm literally just upper body and yeah. um, I have contractures in my shoulder so, and I'm weak on my left side and struggle with my left hand and wrist. So I'm literally just upper body. My upper body doesn't function fully and breaststroke's a leg-based stroke. So if you can imagine someone that's got like not full movements of their arms trying to do breaststroke yeah. and trying not to drown. <laughs> It doesn't yeah. really end very well. That's quite a quite a commitment you've really put yourself to there. You're, yeah. So you're, since getting back into it, I was always like, well, everyone has all the events. Like, I'm never going to race breaststroke. I'm never going to race fly or IM. Mm-hmm. But I should like, I want to be like everyone else. Like, I don't want to take the risk of going to a meet and them saying, oh, well, you haven't got an M or an SB classification, so we're not going to let you race, which wouldn't happen. But I was just worried about like, oh, yeah, like, what will happen if I get to Tokyo and they don't let me race? And I only swim freestyle, and I've started doing backstroke. But for that, you only need an S classification. But I have decided now that my classification review this year, I'm only going to have an S classification because last time for trials for um, Tokyo in 21, it was horrendous. Like I had other SB fours in the same race as me. Mm-hmm. and as an sb4 it's 100 meters as an sb3 it's 50 so it's 100 meters and i got to 20 meters and i was almost at the wall to turn and everyone else had already finished 100 meters wow it was that's, it was very bad <laughs> that's it's, it's it's crazy how that can be such like a discrepancy in in the competition of that mm-hmm. even because to so to me looking in as who's traditionally looked at more of like able-bodied sports than the Paralympics, I've not watched as much as I should. As possible, it's like we you've just explained that to me. What looks like a really vigorous breakdown of making sure everybody's in the same level of competition, but then for you to say, yeah, there's still a disparity of these people are already touching the hundreds, and you're yeah. trying to get to the twenty. It shows how there isn't there isn't probably one method that suits everything. Is probably the no, best way to do that then you're always going to have a higher and a lower class. There's always going to be someone who's the most impaired and the least mm-hmm. impaired in every single classification. Um, but in swimming, it is better than some sports, like in athletics that I started doing a few years ago um, for cross-training. I didn't realise that you only race against people with your impairment. So wheelchair races, for example, with cerebral palsy, there's only two categories, a T34 and a T33. So you either have um, lower limb impairments, like basically you're impaired from the waist down, and you're in the same category. So whether that's mild and you can walk or severe and you can't walk, you're in the same category, you're a T34. If you've got wow. upper body and arm impairment, you're a 33. But again, no matter how severe or mild your upper body impairment is, you're still in a T33. So it's, and they're, they're not even really included in anything anymore. So a T33 generally has to race against the T34 less impaired people. So compared to like other sports like athletics, where there's, like two categories for each person with cerebral palsy it's definitely better but I found it harder over the years in swimming because we're all mixed and no matter what your disability is mm-hmm. it's done on your functional ability so when I was an S9 I raced against amputees and in 2015 um, I obviously was still quite young at that point and I'd massively improved on my butterfly and that was that's always been my favorite stroke which I'm kind of good I can't swim anymore because 
I've, I'm now one arm and no legs, and it doesn't work very well. And it's probably why my shoulder's so dodgy <laughs> from trying to swim one arm. Past. I was gonna say you're trying to do butterfly with one arm is the only thing propelling you forward. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It doesn't turn out very well. I'll, I'll let um, you. So on this season, I've got a guy who's actually from the same school as me, Gregor Swinney. He represented Scotland at the Commonwealth Games in the fly, the 50 meter fly, and he he gave me. I've actually already recorded his episode, so spoiler for listeners in the next couple of weeks. That's coming up, but. He explains how the butterfly works. And then knowing what I know about that and you saying, I tried to do it with only one arm, I think that is nigh on impossible. Yeah, even with like like with both arms without legs, it's really difficult because you need the movement of the hips to get the undulation yeah. to propel yourself forward and, and not just be really flat on the water. So yeah, one arm is like impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like I know swimmers with, uh, like we have a swimmer at home in the Manchester who has a hemiplegia, cerebral palsy, so she's affected on one side. Okay. So she does swim with one arm and fly and on freestyle, but she kicks with both legs. Okay. So it's a bit different. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's like it's like it's it's taking away the power sort of really, isn't it? Because the, the yeah. arms sort of kind of steer and sort of direct and the legs and like you say, the hips and the legs are where the power really comes from. And that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so back then like, I improved massively on my fly. And I think about a month before uh, the World Championships, I broke the European record. And I was the first person in Europe to go into 110, which I was like so happy about. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got to Worlds and in the fly, I beat Sarai Gascon, who's a Spanish swimmer who was expected, it's always one, expected to win. Um, and she wasn't very happy about it, <laughs> obviously. And <laughs> afterwards in our after I, I don't know many elite athletes that are happy about losing, to be fair, Tally. <laughs> the issue, like, I think it's slightly different now, but back then there was a big mixed in the s9 category and the sa s9 s10 when you had someone with more of an invisible disability like cerebral palsy ms like a neurological condition versus an amputee we, they were kind of at war with us because they were like well we can see our disability we can't see yours mm-hmm. um even though obviously like i still used a wheelchair at that point it was kind of obvious but it's less obvious in water if that made sense but um than an amputee mm-hmm. And we were at the after party. She, we were, we were all pretty drunk at this point, but she came up to me and literally started screaming at me, saying I wasn't disabled and I was a cheater and it's not fair and like shouldn't be an S nine and what? So there's a lot of like, yeah, there's there's definitely a big feud between the amputees and the non amputees that have to race against each other and swimming. I I like if you you see if you were to think there's one place where that doesn't happen if somebody be like you're not really disabled like you. You wouldn't think that the Paralympics or the world champions would be where this takes place. Honestly, I think it's the worst for it, especially like especially for people that have more invisible disabilities or more mild impairments, mm-hmm. and they're racing against someone who's missing a limb, which is obviously really obvious. It's yeah, it can be a nightmare, and then you feel like you constantly have to like justify your disability and your classification. That's that's wild. So. How if how were you when that was? Because that wasn't that wasn't at Berlin. I've we were we were talking about Berlin. Where was where was that a bit? Um, so that was 2015, the World Championships in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. That's uh, explains how you ended up drunk then if you were subject to Glasgow. But that's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's I can't. I I I never had any idea something like that would happen. That's that's thrown me for six there. That's how do you. How do you handle that situation? Because you, in 2015, how old would you have been there? Because we're about the same age. So. Uh, about 18. Yeah, so you, I was yeah. going to say, because that's, that's quite, quite a big conversation for somebody to sort of spring upon you after a few fruit shoots, because 
<laughs> to be honest, like, how did, when you, how did you deal with that situation? Well, I was quite drunk, so right. I literally kind of just sat there and you're like, the you're like outside now, fifty meters in the pool, winner takes all. Was like one of these like these movies where it's like we'll have the we'll have the we'll have the real race in the in the quiet. Well, I mean, we were opposite a lake, so I wouldn't have put it past her to be like, get in the lake. <laughs> get in the lake. <laughs> um, it was, we were like in a, like an after party that the event organisers had like put on for us. Um, mm-hmm. And the issue was that all of the other British swimmers, apart from the under 18s that weren't at the after party, because obviously they weren't allowed to drink, um, had gone out to a club. But I drank too much and I was like, I don't feel like going to a club because when I drink, I literally lose like pretty much all movement of my body. Like even my arms, <laughs> it's really hard to push my chair. So I'm just like, I'm not going to go to a club when I can barely move. Um, so it's, so Glasgow, it's, back. Really, it's like a disaster waiting to yeah, happen. Yeah. So I stayed back and every, all my teammates were at a club and she literally came up to me. So I was just there, like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know anyone. Like, so I was just kind of looking around, like, because there were like media people in there, like some of the journalists and that. And I was kind of oh, looking around, like, do I recognize anyone? Can anyone help me? Um, and then some of the Irish team came up to me and like rescued me and took, like walked me back to the hotel. <laughs> so I was just sat there like staring at her while she was like shouting at me. And I was like, I don't want to move in case she like hits me, but I also don't want to just sit here. Just sit here and take it. That's, oh my God. Yeah, she's wow, quite that's, 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 I'm sorry, that's very sort of loser as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that's not yeah. sportsmanship at all. No, yeah. don't be like that. Like, listeners, no. don't be like that. <laughs> that's, Oh well, I was going to talk about Glasgow, so now seems like a good time. We'll quickly, we'll quickly run back through Berlin. No, no, I want to talk about. I'll, I'll edit this so this swings around nicely, and if not, I'll just leave it in because it shows how conversations normally go. Because I go off on tangents, so it's nice to see that somebody else does it as well, and I love that. So we'll talk about, we'll talk about Berlin, then we'll go into Glasgow quite quickly. Um, yeah, you basically went to Berlin on this new podium potential bracket that you've been put in first international competition. Mum was screaming to the high heavens in the spectators, but that's just what a loving mum does, so we won't hold that against her. Mrs. Kearney, you've done a great job. You Don't don't let Tully give you grief for it. She might know a bit more about swimming than you, but that's a different story for a different day. <laughs> uh, seven medals in age grades. How was it when you kept winning these medals? Because obviously, like, had you built up the international competition in your mind and then you just kept winning medals and you were like, this is quite easy, really. I, I, to be honest, I think I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Like, I just wasn't, I just remember like being overwhelmed. Like, it's the biggest pool I'd ever been to. And Berlin's quite cool. So, on, you can either, so the pool is really weird. Like, when you're on the road, all you can see is a massive field of grass and then there's a random lift. It's literally, the pool is an underground bunker. That's pretty cool. It's like so weird. And everyone's like, where's the pool? Where's the pool? And it's literally underground. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, like, you get a lift down, and you, there's two levels. So, I think before we were at the top level, and you go on, and it takes you on to, like, the spectator level, okay. um, which is, like, really weird. And then on the spectator level is that there's actually another pool. So, there's two pools kind of next to each other, 50-meter pools, but they're on different levels. One's higher than the other one. Like, the competition <laughs> pool's lower, and the training pool's higher up, okay. um, which is kind of a pain when you've got loads of wheelchair users in the same race, and there's one little lift that fits one chair at a time. Kind of difficult for everyone to move around. Um, but like, <laughs> Sorry, I, just, I love the logistics of these people that have hosted like a para event and they just see all of you guys with your wheelchairs and just one lift. And I know there's like one core like event coordinator just with their head in their hands, just be like, 
oh, we fucked it. We've absolutely fucked it. Yeah, they're like calling you in the call room and you have like a certain, you have to be there like, it's normally about 15 minutes before and they're calling you and they're like, oh no, she's still in the lift. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like ridiculous. But they are generally, if you're literally stuck in a lift or stuck in a queue waiting for a lift, they are generally, unless it's like a Paralympic Games, they are generally a bit lenient because you can't exactly help that. Yeah. Um, You just have to like make sure you leave like 20 minutes to get down on a lift. But um, yeah, it was just like I didn't, I don't know how many spectators that pool holds, but it was just massive. And then like at the ceiling, like over the fifty meter pool, there's mm-hmm. the flag of every single country. So it was just like a really cool atmosphere. We were sat in the stands, which I think that was the first time I'd been sat on the stands because at like low level meets you always sat on poolside, mm-hmm. but like at big meets they've got all the cameras and stuff, and you can't be on poolside. So you know that was like a really cool thing, and obviously being part of a team and like being with the older ones, like learning from them and like kind of copying what they do, like see see how they recover between races. And I was just kind of like overwhelmed and trying to take it all in. To be honest. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like you did all right. And whoever you copied clearly knew what to do because you, I have it down here as you had seven medals at age grades. Then you also picked up two silver and one of your first golds at Open at that event. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I like that you confirmed that. Yeah, that means I did my job, right? I remember I got nine, yeah, because it was really nice. Like, at the end of the meet, I remember, like, the the Burning Open's lovely because even if you, like, come 30th, you get a certificate. So, okay. like, even in some of the races I did where I didn't medal, um, you get a certificate for every single one. And the ones that, like, I think within top 10, you would get a medal anyway. So, um, like, we had, like, a little presentation presentation back in the hotel before we went home. And like they got the older, like experienced athletes to present them to us. So it was like a really nice experience. Oh, and, like you listen to the team. Oh, that's great. I love it when they do stuff like that. I think like yeah. team bonding and especially age grade when there's like a lot of passing because like a lot of people come in and come out. So mm-hmm. it's nice that they had the older people to sort of be like, We're going off to this now, but like yeah. this is your this is your sort of mantle to take on. And they always like uh, at camps and like lower like UK competitions, we were always if there were like younger ones in the team, we were always with the younger ones. Um, mm-hmm. But at bigger meets, they always um, put us in a, a hotel room with an older experienced athlete so that they could kind of guide us of how you're supposed to do things and how everything works. And, you know, like, so we could learn from them. I love that. They, that there's, I know there's a thing they do at Edinburgh Uni in the PE department, like the PE education that do that. They call it, they call it parents and parents and children. So it's quite nice that they do it. They're like, here's the older head and like sort of look after you. Yeah. Oh, that's that's amazing. I love that. Uh, do, 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 do. Your first adult level comp or open level, I probably should say. Um. No. Oh, we'll talk about that. So we talk about we spoke about the funding that got you on to world class development funded athlete, did it not after yeah. Berlin? So how did that then change your life? How was that different to the podium potential athlete? So that that's what it was. Oh, so, so they're that, the same thing? Yeah, so they're okay, changing right, okay. names. So All right. Development is now what's known as podium potential. Okay, right, okay. Okay, let's get that question. We're done. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, edit. Um. <laughs> hey, so sorry to interrupt the podcast. This is something I wanted to tell you about, and it's something I wanted to explain before I just go around throwing it everywhere, because this is something that was quite difficult for me to decide to do. It took a lot of deliberation and a lot of discussion with friends and family. I have now created an option where you can tip the podcast or you can reward the podcast if you feel the podcast deserves it. There is an option down below where I found, I went on the internet, I found this website that wants to reward content. 2013, that was your first adult open level competition. That was Montreal. Yeah. 
That did mum did mum fly out to that one? <laughs> she did, yeah. My brother did as well, actually. Um oh, bless him. So when I was younger, like before we moved to Birmingham, we actually lived in Alberta in Medicine Hat, uh, um, in Canada, when my dad was posted there. So what like, you think of Canada? As, I love it. I think it's great. As soon as like my mum heard, ah. <laughs> Like, as soon as my mum heard it was like it was in Canada, she was like, Oh, we're definitely going. <laughs> and um, it was just that was such a surreal experience, but it was a really good learning curve. So I went there like a really picky eater. Um, I was at that point, um, I was at boarding school, and our coach was a little bit obsessed about girls going to boarding school get fat. And oh, um, how did, how did he deduce that I one? Just, so he would like come and watch our meals all the time. So a lot of us were underweight and I was really underweight at that point. So like I couldn't afford to not eat and be fussy and like lose weight. Mm-hmm. So I went there and because back then like it was really weird. Like I wouldn't eat sandwiches. I don't know why, but like the lunch, unless it was a subway, like it was, I was just really weird, like really picky. <laughs> I've always been picky about like processed meat and like, you know, like slabs, you know, like. That's, that's probably good to be there. Yeah, that's probably yeah. good to be. It's definitely um, in Turkey. Some of it's definitely not when Turkey. it's like the only option. <laughs> so, like the lunch meal every day, because I think we were there about ten days before it started, like for the to get used to like time difference and everything, and get over jet lag, mm-hmm. and and like get a feel for the pool. And it was very different this competition. So the lunch options every day, because we were, I think we used a few hotels, but most of the countries were in our hotel. So there was they just did a massive buffet for like all the countries. And every lunch was a deconstructed sandwich. You literally had to pick your bread, pick your meat. And then there was, they wouldn't give us fruit. Like I kept asking for bananas and they said no, because we've not got enough for everyone. Um, so the veg was raw broccoli and raw cauliflower, which at that age, I was like, I'm not eating that. So I literally... I like, don't eat that now if somebody had <laughs> raw broccoli or cauliflower. But like it got to the point that by the competition start, like within like just over a week, I'd lost like seven kilos. And I was just really weak. So then um, I swam one bad. race really well, but then I just didn't have any energy. So my mum had to keep sneaking in subways. Because <laughs> they're not wait, supposed wait. to. If, if, you lose, if you lose eight kilos, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was it was crazy. Um, and then, like, if there was food that I didn't like, like, I wasn't allowed to ask for anything else. So I just wasn't really eating. But obviously that was a lesson to me, that if you want to race well, you've got to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but that pool was really cool because it was that was the last time that we were actually allowed to race outdoors. But the the rules had changed that we weren't allowed to be technically in an outdoor pool. So the two pools were kind of next to each other, like an L shape. So the competition pool was at the back long ways and the other one was kind of width ways next to it. And um, the competition pool, they covered in a tent. So like the top of it was covered and the side of it kind of had like gaps and they had all these like big like metal stand, like scaffold stands put up. Mm. But it meant that when you were swimming, every time you breathed, you got blinded by the sun because like, obviously it was really hot and all the sun was like coming through the sides because there was nothing at the sides like no tents at the sides just at the top it was just like a metal structure and then there were thunderstorms so we couldn't warm up or swim down because the warm swim down pool had no coverage and the indoor one had metal so we were all just kind of huddled in the in the small changing village that was actually like made out of bricks like while the thunderstorms went past because all of our team areas were tents metal tents with like white teepees on like, and that's not I, what you want to stand under in a thunderstorm no <laughs> and obviously like being in a wheelchair i was like i definitely don't want to be sat outside <laughs> too much there. oh this so, it was um, an interesting experience it was honestly one of the coolest world champs i've ever been to though the fact that it mm-hmm. was outside it was in like a really cool country like really nice and hot we got a great tan especially like training in an outdoor pool 
It was yeah, it was interesting. I probably wouldn't want to race the world champs in an outdoor pool cover by ten again. To no. be honest, because like you said, that's no longer allowed, is it? Yeah, like all no. official meets are in indoor pools now, aren't they? Unless I know the everybody guys like they're short course champs, they're allowed to be outdoors, but in oh. like the long course, it has to be indoors. What's, what's the reason behind that? Is it just the we've just decided that, or I think it's the unfair advantage of the wind, the sun, like especially okay. backstroke, you've got nothing to follow, like the amount oh, yeah, of. True instances where people swim into lane ropes get tangled in them like so it's, it's not fun yeah i'm sold indoor indoor pools it is well okay so you gave us a beautiful bit of insight there as to the fact that uh, the lovely spanish lady decided to scream in your face after you claimed one of the medals at glasgow but what you didn't mention is you got four medals at glasgow and this is when you really started to become from my perspective now, you really start to become a force in the pool in your mm. subcategories at your strokes. How was Glasgow? Did you have a real... Because by this point, like you said, you were 18 now, so had that competition mindset started to become a bit more prevalent in your brain now? You're like, oh, this is this is go time now. This isn't... Hey, I'm quite good at this, and this is a lot of fun. Not To be honest, at that point, no. I was still doubting myself quite a lot. And... I hadn't raced internationally in 2014 because unfortunately I picked up a sickness bug at trials mm-hmm. um, and it was kind of an infuriating thing. So with Commonwealths, the trials, the way they did it is they had the everybody trials in Glasgow and then a week later, like there was a week gap and then ours. But at the last few days of the everybody trials, they had, because obviously in the Commonwealth, there's a couple of power events. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the trials for Commonwealth, the power summits. So I swam the 200 IM. And I would have had to do like, I think something like a six second PB over 200 meters to qualify. So I knew I wasn't going to, but it was like a chance to kind of pre-race before racing, but also just to see what would happen. Um, So I wasn't expecting to qualify, Um, Mm -hmm. but I swam and I actually did really well. I did a four second PB, but obviously still didn't qualify, but I wasn't, I wasn't upset because I wasn't expecting to, and I was still young at that age and like, I just didn't really, I knew it wasn't going to happen. So I wasn't that bothered. Um, unfortunately that week gap had got really ill and even though I'd swam at the same pool because it was a different competition they wouldn't accept it as a medical appeal what? Um, so I, swam, I did try and swim through it but I swam really bad so I basically didn't get to swim internationally that year so the next year I was like pretty nervous um, I didn't actually qualify for 2015 Worlds I was picked for a relay um, so I was feeling pretty like oh like, I don't know if I should be here like oh like, I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, I'd swam really well the month before at the pool in Glasgow, the Scottish Championships, where I'd broke the record on the fly, the European record. And I'd recently moved to Manchester for the National Performance Centre, and I was working under Graham Smith. And um, that was kind of, for me, the start of a great relationship with him. And he's honestly one of the best coaches I have. And he came up to me, and he could tell that I was feeling deflated. And he just said, like... Cause some of the athletes, I had so many individual races. I had five individuals and two relays. And obviously, for all of them, you've got heats and a finals. Mm-hmm. And some of them are on the same day. So it's a lot of races to fit into 10 days. And um, I also had a shoulder injury. So it was some of the athletes that were for the relay. Obviously, like we always want to win the relays. And we generally always do win the higher classification relays, the 34 points. Um and some of the athletes were saying, well, maybe you should pull out of this race because it's on the same day as the relay and we want you to win the relay. And I obviously was not having any of it. I was like, hang on, you can't tell me that I have to withdraw out of my individuals because you're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, so I was like, it's a bit contradictory. <laughs> but like, obviously I went to my coach and he was like, he said to me, 
Graham knows me better than I myself, and he was always no. giving me advice, always knew what I needed. Um, and he was the first coach that actually just knew what to say. And he came up to me and was like, I don't want to put pressure on you, but if you swim well when you do everything, like as I say, and as planned, you're going to come away as the highest medal earner for GB. And I looked at him and I was like, you're mental. I was like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and it happened. And like, I swam really well. Like his pep talks really helped. I kind of started to ignore everyone else and was like, you know what? I'm just going to go and enjoy it. And yeah, I came away with four golds, a silver and a bronze, which is kind of mental. And, and GB's highest medal earner and broke the European record in the 100 fly again. Mm-hmm. And I love that you slipped again nine. quietly in there. Like, I, I broke that again. So, yeah. so did um, you break your own world record? You broke your own European record at that point. Then? Yeah, and it was only a month after I'd, I'd first broke it. So like that, I think, I think maybe that was my. Oh no, I think I, I think that was maybe my second European record. I think I already had it in the 400 freestyle. I broke the IM 200 IM record as well. And for me, that I was chasing the world record to the S9 category so fast. Because years ago, there was an amputee swimmer who swam um, as an S9, and she was just rapid. So no one, like even now, a lot of the world records, no one's near them. So I was just trying to like get closer and closer and closer to a world record because I was mo- still miles off them, even though I was the quickest in the world at that time by far. Um, but yeah, that was kind of, that was my the first time where I was like, you know what? I am actually pretty good at this. That was the first time that I had confidence in myself that, actually, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Maybe I can get to Paralympic Games, like maybe Rio's, you know, going to be the break point for me, the, the point where I can actually start to make a name for myself and and show what I can actually do. Because and that was one thing that was disappointing. At our competitions, there's not always that many people that had come. And at Glasgow, I was obviously really excited. It was UK-based, and but we only had a 14-members team. So GB, we took 14 athletes, and that was it. Yeah. Um, because... We, the national performance director at the time decided, even though obviously being in Glasgow is much cheaper, he didn't want to take athletes for experience. He only took athletes that were going to win medals. So there was only 14 of us, which meant that there was only 14 British families yeah. <laughs> in the stands. So that the stands were, were pretty empty and it was pretty disheartening. Uh, yeah. did so, you, like, when that's going on, did you, I know, like you said, you're very, you're very busy in the pool. You've got to cram in all these, what, the best part of, what was that? Six, seven medals in ten days. You won four golds, two silver, one bronze. Yeah, yeah seven. Yeah, math, math isn't my strong point. Uh, like you said, when there's when there's only fourteen of you, does that put like a real emphasis on like the togetherness and the team of it? Like, do you find you really come together because you knew there was yeah. so little of you there? That honestly, that was the best team that I've been on because there were only a few of us. It was such tight knit. We were so close, and also like, even though there were only fourteen. Every single final, there are at least five of them in the stand cheering for you. That's great. And like we've always had that that kind of rule that if you're not swimming the next day, you're in the stands, you're cheering for everyone else. And if you finish competing, you're there every single night. So like that is just it makes such a big difference, especially like in Glasgow, the athletes. There was a temporary stand put on poolside because behind the pool there's a massive dead space, which is great mm-hmm. because it's where you can do a lot of your prep stuff, where they can make the core rooms. So they can literally use scaffolding to make whatever. So they made stands that the athletes were sat on and underneath was the call room. Um, but it meant that they were literally on poolside. So you could hear them shouting at you. They were literally like a few metres behind you, behind the block. That's great. I love that. Uh, that. That was honestly. And then when you got out of the pool, you had to walk past them to get to the media. So like you got to see them like as you came out. So it was really nice. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it when teams go that because what is... 
what I traditionally and I think a lot of people might associate as maybe an individual sport rather than a team sport mm-hmm. of swimming because what people obviously see excluding the the medleys when you've got groups of people diving in over each other you've got yeah. we just see the one person I think the best example for my listeners might be when a lot of people saw Michael Phelps they didn't think Michael Phelps of Team USA you kind of just knew Michael Phelps as Michael Phelps who happened to represent the USA yeah but like there is a big team camaraderie to it and like you say you're training at Sheffield Pool you're part of the Walsall Swim Club you are part of the Manchester City Swim Club you're not Manchester City the football team but City of Manchester football football club yeah they're part of a team you're always part of a team and it there is that togetherness and there is that want for everyone around you to do well which i think is great and then obviously a few spanish people go and ruin a few things every now and again but they're they're by the by but um you got reclassified for glasgow did you not yeah yeah so how did how did that come about was this when you went from the s9 to the s5 um no so this was just because, as at this point, did I know? I think I, no, I did know I had dystonia. But at this point, my dystonia was getting slightly worse. So I was diagnosed mm-hmm. at sixteen with dystonia. Mm-hmm. Um, we noticed that I had some symptoms that weren't typical of cerebral palsy, um, and we just didn't really know what it was. And unfortunately, dystonia is not very well known. So it took about three years to actually get diagnosed with it. And basically, it's a neurological movement disorder. It can be similar to cerebral palsy, but again, there's hundreds of different types. And the type that I have is generalized dystonia. So okay. I have a mixture of fixed contractures and like uncontrollable muscle movements. So if you the kind of the easiest way I can explain it now is for me, like if I'm trying to, for example, like if I'm trying to use my quad, so I want mm-hmm. to try and contract my quad, my hamstrings are extremely overactive, and part of that is from the cerebral palsy. Um, but apart from the dystonia. So usually like um, hamstrings and quads and bicep tricep, if you try, if you contract one and the other one relaxes, I can't contract the other one. So when I'm oh. trying to move a muscle, both, but they're basically fighting against each other. They both switch on at the same time, which makes it really hard for me to move. Um, um. So that's kind of the easiest way to explain dystonia. As you imagine every time you try and move, you've got muscles fighting against each other. So, okay which obviously restricts movement, restricts quality of movement, um, which causes, you know, like spasms, uh, shaky movements and contractures where you just can't move. So that's, it's obviously something to come to terms with. But the reason that I got reclassified is because my dystonia had started to affect me to the point that I couldn't now get on the blocks without support. And you can't, when you're classified, you can't just add stuff. It has to be assessed. So I had to go through the classification system again to get reassessed because I needed that support to get on the block. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that support is in physically being lifted, like help um, well, onto the block, or just like help stay. So I, I used to have someone um, stood. So I was stood side onto the block, and then mm-hmm. there was someone stood the other side with their hands out, and I would literally put all my body weight onto them. Oh right, okay. Throw myself on them while I was stepping up, <laughs> and okay, then they would and then... stay myself and then step away. Okay, and then as you found out what dystonia, you had dystonia and as it got classified, that then led to them sort of not stepping away as you were going to go to the base, sort of just like a, an extra sort of basically a, a, an armrest type thing or like somebody there. Yeah, it's basically just to help you like get up the step because blocks are pretty high off the floor. I don't actually okay. know how high, I've never measured it, but it's it's a pretty high step. So when a, couple you've got, feet, yeah, a couple of feet. Yeah, when you've got a lower limb impairment, it's pretty difficult to get the force and the balance because... 
the block's slanted, it's not flat. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's slanted to get you in that optimal race position. But if you've got limited movement in you know knees, ankles, hips, and you're trying yeah. to stand on a obviously first time you're standing side on and you're leaning to one side and you haven't got I've I've never had a very strong core. So like trying mm-hmm. to balance as well, not only just stepping up, but then trying to balance, swivel yourself and bend down without falling in. Like it's definitely beneficial to have someone to hold on to. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. That sounds, that sounds very beneficial. Um, I find it really interesting because I actually know. Are you familiar with uh, James Sutliff? Yeah. Yeah, I I know him through a mental health group. I a lot of work. I think he's one of the most inspirational people I've ever spoke to in my life. But he's he's given me a quick explanation on dystonia before and how it affected him. And it's I find it really strange when I hear your situation with dystonia because, like you said, yours was a sort of gradual thing and like it took three years to become enough that you sort of assessed it and go oh I have dystonia but his happened overnight he woke up one day with we didn't wake up with dystonia but it like sort of took a hold just overnight Mm. which is I I had certain things like my first symptoms which is actually quite typical of um generalized dystonia so a lot of a lot of people that develop it in younger like kind of teenage years it's quite common to get it in teenage years and usually the first symptom is what's happened to me is my left foot turned in and it wouldn't go out and we knew that that wasn't cerebral palsy because it can happen with cerebral palsy but it happens over time for muscle shortening it doesn't just suddenly happen yeah um, and it wouldn't straighten and so um, when you say you say turn in does like it actually pointed towards the other foot or was it turned in as in like rolled or no like pointed into and it wouldn't go back and Obviously, I've got other symptoms that aren't as severe as that. But again, like everyone with stone is completely different. Some people wake up and it's just there. Some people it's like over years. And for me with my type, um, unfortunately, what's quite common is that you rapidly progress for five years. So okay. over a five-year period, I kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then I slowly started to stabilize. So by the time I was around 20-ish is when I started to finally settle. Okay. Wow, that's um so how does how does this because obviously what we what people like myself would probably see from you is you obviously have these disabilities you know this is around 2016 time you now have dystonia and you know and you've always had your cerebral palsy unfortunately you've been dealt this tough hand but you're you're showing great adversity and you're showing that it's not a limitation because you're 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 taking medals on for fun at the competitions and you're still active on social media you're still doing all these things you're okay, I have to do things differently to able-bodied people, but I'm still doing them. There's no, there's nothing stopping me here. Uh, how does this affect personal life? Like, for example, are you, do you require, I'm trying to trying to really word this in a way that shows the respect that the ma- demands. So if I say anything that's out of turn, please like, don't take it offensively. I'm not trying to cause offense. But it's like, do you require additional care in certain aspects of your life? still even though you have all these what people would consider athletic achievements and you have these minor like you say the the great example is like people are saying your physical disabilities aren't as visual as uh, physical amputees or things like that or short stature so to start with no um mm-hmm. up until i think it was about 2017 where it was like the end of 2016 start of 2017 where it got to the point where it was really bad um okay. and that's actually at that point i had to stop swimming I had to withdraw from Rio a week before I was supposed to fly out. Mm-hmm. I lost my funding. I lost my place at the National Centre. And I was in constant, I had constant nerve pain um, from the shoulder issues. I couldn't lift either arm above shoulder height. 
I had very little use of my legs. My core was really weak. I basically had lost a lot of my function. And I and had this to has just relearn. been caused by a compound of the dystonia and the... Yeah, just a, a massive progression of the dystonia. Um, mm -hmm. We had a coach who wasn't very nice, um, treated us extremely badly, who eventually was fired for... Uh, a basically, a lot of us reported him for basically abuse. And okay. he was fired for that. Um, from that, I have PTSD. So, like, all of this stressful stuff, like, with dystonia, stress can make it a lot worse and, and trigger it to get worse a lot quicker. Um, I'd had a few falls, and I fell onto my shoulder. And, again, trauma, like, some people develop dystonia from having a spinal injury, being at a car crash. Like, sometimes trauma can cause it to react. Okay. And for me, um, the stress and then falling onto my shoulder and getting a soft tissue injury is what caused the dystonia to move to my shoulders. Um so I then had to basically relearn. I wasn't even thinking about sport at that point. I had to relearn how to move, like how to get dressed, how to basically function, how to get myself to uni, like how to be able to sit through a lecture without crying in pain. Um, it was rough. Like it was a really rough time. It was really hard to deal with. Um, going from a part-time wheelchair user to a full-time wheelchair user, not even be able to walk around a Tesco Express anymore. Like that that was kind of the most annoying thing is those little things mm -hmm. that I could still do that was easy. Like I could run into Tesco Express and get a loaf of bread. But now I have to get my chair out and it takes so much longer. It takes so much more effort. Um, and it was, that was kind of the biggest thing at that point. I wasn't really thinking, oh, I'm not going to swim again. It was mm -hmm. more of like, what am I going to do with my life? Like I kind of fully identified as an athlete. And I was like, well, who am I now if I can't swim? Um, but I did have carers before, but I didn't need them for as many things. So, like, if I decided to walk around a shop, I had to get someone to hold a, like, I was on crutches, couldn't walk without crutches. So I was, had to get someone to obviously, like, push the shopping or have mm -hmm. a basket. Um, and I was quite stubborn at that point. I didn't want to use my chair every time I went to a supermarket unless I obviously needed to, unless I was really tired. And I had, like, help for folding washing and just general stuff. But I could still cook myself quite easily. Like, there, there were things that I didn't need help with. Um so it was only really like once or twice a week for a couple of hours. And then it came to the point where I needed help pretty much every day to do a lot of stuff. And um, like things you wouldn't think about, like even where I live now, the bin storage is outside mm. and there's a, a lock pad. So like for me, having to press buttons and then turn something really quickly is really difficult because it's the not only you've got a plan, how you're going to do it. I can't go from pressing a button to turning the little turny thing quick enough for the door okay. to actually open. And the, the fact as well, it was obviously really high up and the bins are really high because they're like the industrial ones, not oh, like yeah, normal. Yeah. Um, so even things like that are like really challenging that I'd have never thought about when I could walk. And I, mm -hmm. I think other people wouldn't necessarily think of. Um, but yeah, so I kind of just really, like I was lucky that I still had uni, that I'd already started uni in Manchester. Kind of threw myself into that. Had to move out of the swimming flat because I was in a British swimming flat. Uh, mm -hmm. moving to pools which was a horrendous experience um and it's just like so loud there when you when you struggle to sleep anyway from pain and then you've got students up all, all hours of the night like yeah just don't sleep like it just doesn't help um and then I think as well like that was kind of the most eye-opening thing for me is that I was in denial a lot that I was struggling with depression and I just didn't want to accept it and then when I moved into halls there were seven of us in halls and five out of seven of us were on antidepressants and Why? that was like made me realize well actually this is quite a normal thing for people my age and most people haven't really been through all this stuff <laughs> so um 
that kind of made me feel a bit better about it. However, having five people on antidepressants probably wasn't the best planning of putting them all in the same flat yeah, because yeah. they would just sit there drinking alcohol, which wasn't exactly the best thing to do. Oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> so yeah, don't if you're if you're struggling mental health, don't just sit and drink alcohol. It literally just makes things worse. It does not help. Um, I, I I agree with that statement. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, soon like so, soon myself out of that and i just don't drink anymore because i just well now i just don't i don't really care for it anymore but i kind of like realized quickly that i need to stop because it's not it's not helping like there's no reason that i'm doing it i'm just doing it just to kill time basically Mm -hmm. um and um yeah so after about a year my mum was like well my mum had started a master's swim club in birmingham and um i was still like pretty much heading home every weekend because my carers were in like midweek so I would generally drive home to Birmingham every weekend just so my mum could look after me, basically. Um, and the one of my old swimming co- coaches had made a master squad, and a lot of the swimmers in it were parents of kids I used to swim with, and like my mum had started swimming with them. And she was like, well, why didn't you come along? And at that point, I was kind of like, well, I'd rather never try to swim again and like not know rather than get in and realise I can't swim, because I, I was like, I'd just be devastated all over again if I can't swim. But somehow she just knew that I'd figure out a way. Like, she didn't think I'd ever get back into swimming again, but she just wanted me to know, like, you, you know, if I went on a holiday and I wanted to, like, float in the pool or go in the beach, like, on in the sea on the beach, she wanted me to know that I could do it. Yeah. And she didn't want me to, like, miss out and feel like I couldn't. And, you know, even, like, if you go for a, like family swim, you're just floating around. She just want me to know that I could, and um, it comes. It comes back to like you said at the start. Then it's like you don't feel like you're in that different category. Like even if you're just in the water, yeah. you still feel like you're there. But I think at this point as well, it was the I didn't know how people were going to react. I didn't know how to react to people that knew me before. I didn't know how they were going to react to me. I just mm-hmm. didn't really know what to do. I didn't know whether I need to explain myself. I didn't know whether I don't say anything. Like, do I just not look at them? Do I avoid them? Do I never speak to anyone again that I knew before? It was kind of like. I just overthought everything and I was just like, I don't know what to do. Um, but I was really lucky that I eventually, my mum eventually convinced me to go and I started in the learn to swim lane. So mm-hmm. we had a coach in that was like literally figuring out what I could do, what I couldn't do um, and getting me back into it. And within a year I'd gone up. So it was a four lane pool. I'd started and learned to swim. And within a year I was in the quickest lane beating everyone. How was that? Um, that's That's an incredible story in itself. Just even even if you completely like just take that one aspect of I went from learn to swim lane to the fastest in a year again that's incredible on its own but how was those learn to swim lesson days when you're thinking I've got medals in this and I'm having to literally teach myself how to do the basics of this again how was that I hated it. Like, emotionally yeah I, I was embarrassed like absolutely hated it like everyone knew me as a mm-hmm. world champion they expected me to go to Rio and come at home with at least three gold medals and I didn't go. I felt like a failure. I felt like I let one down. And I was also really embarrassed, like the fact that I know people were obviously worried about me and like worried about what had happened and stuff. But and people don't mean to stare, but it's also like everywhere you go where people know you, they're like, oh God, what's happened to you? And it's just like, oh, do yeah. I really have to explain it again? Like it was just. And that, I suppose you have to do it. Like you don't just, like you can't just do it once. You have yeah. to, every time you see somebody, you have to almost relive it, which is tough. I think because I knew these people, one way it was harder because they knew what it was like before, but in the other way it was easier because I felt like I could trust them. And like within a couple of sessions, I did feel much better. But I just kind of thought like, um, 
I did, wasn't really thinking about race internationally, but I was just kind of thinking like, this was the one thing that I thought I was going to do forever. Like when I retire, I was always going to keep swimming because it's always been my thing. And I used to spend 28 to 30 hours a week training. So even when I was getting back in, I was doing like maximum an hour a week. And I still had all these hours where I was just like, I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, and obviously like I put loads of weight on because when you, when you're training like 70 K a week, you can eat whatever you want. Well, obviously yeah, you're just burning I calories you aren't you? so much. Yeah. Like you literally like, I think I was having like five meals a day at one point on like loads of snacks because I needed it because I was training a ridiculous amount. And when you stop all exercise and then also you can't walk anymore, you're in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. like full time. You just don't burn like, any calories. Because uh, swimming, it's it's the one-to-one rest to work ratio, isn't it? Because there's no mm-hmm. impact. So yeah, yeah you're, you're churning out kilometers. Yeah, so I used to do like nine, nine two-hour sessions a week in the pool, sometimes 10. And then like a good few hours, like two two hours twice a week in the gym sometimes mm-hmm. three so it was like it was a lot of work and um yeah so going from that to starting again but so I did, after I kind of got to the point where I could swim and I could fit into kind of a club environment I decided because I was still at Manchester Met they honored my sports scholarship so they pay for your city of Manchester some fees so it meant obviously that's, I didn't that's, have a that's good of them to honor that though I think yeah, that's, yeah. so they pay for your fees and your training sessions. So I literally, all I had to pay for was my um, ASA swim membership so that I could actually be like a registered member of the club. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously it was a massive weight lifted off. I didn't have to pay for SNC. I got one-on-one SNC. And at first I was nervous starting with a new coach that hadn't worked with swimmers, hadn't worked with uh, disabled people. Honestly, one of the best SNC coaches I've ever had. It was like, he reached out to people. He worked with para-athletes. He reached out, um, to like British swimming, like because they had a con- MMU sport had a connection with British para swimming, obviously being in Manchester, and mm-hmm. um, like did research online and was just really open to asking me. And there was another athlete, Hannah Dines, who actually got me into athletics. Um, who's a para cyclist, went to Rio, and he worked with was, both. Was, of was she the one on your story the other day? I think I saw you too. No, that? no, that was a so that was a, another athlete. But Hannah did actually get me into a frame running, but um. She she's a lovely girl, honestly, really really kind, and he was just amazing with us. Like he sat us down, like we went through what we can and can't do, and just kind of both we we all learned together. And he was just honestly amazing. And I got physio support, so stuff that I wouldn't have been able to afford because I wasn't on funding anymore. I just got, um, and that made such a big difference. And I started training with City of Manchester with Matt Walker, who actually was a teammate of mine years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a toxic CP. So it's kind of like a shaky type of CP. Um, and he was an S7 uh, swimmer, like world Paralympic European champion. So obviously a great person to average coach. And <laughs> it took him a while because he'd known me as an S9 swimmer. It did take quite a long time for him to realize my limitations, like my new limitations. And yeah. that I, cause he was trying to get me to do leg kick and I literally would just be laying there. And I now have no use of my legs in the pool. So like, unless my legs are touching something like the wall, I can't feel them. I don't know where they are and I can't move them. So I'm quite lucky that I still get a bit of push off of the wall after a tumble turn when my feet touch the wall. But apart from that, I can't use them. I don't know where they are. Okay. So like, he was trying to get me to do leg kick and I was literally just floating there for like five minutes, not moving. And I looked around and I was like, Matt, can I stop now? <laughs> like, I'm not going to move. And eventually he realised that, yeah, actually this isn't doing anything. <laughs> Bless him. He must, he must have felt quite guilty when he was, he was like, oh. I've asked, yeah. the, I've asked the girl that can't feel her feet to kick. Yeah, and then once you realise, like, and because 
because I still struggled a lot with nerve pain and shoulder pain. Mm -hmm. There were some times I was just in too much pain and I just needed a break. So um, we started doing like a mushroom float. So basically Mm -hmm. you grab your arms, tuck up your knees, put your head under, like tuck your head under like you're a little mushroom and you just float. And it used to petrify the lifeguards because I can hold my breath for quite a long time. <laughs> and he used to like sometimes he tap me on the head like you're still breathing. Yes. Um, it's, it, you know it's you know it's a long time if your coach has to pull your head out and go you are still alive, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but like it was just like a really good reset. Like I was in loads of pain, so I just literally go into my little mushroom float in my own little world underwater, which has obviously always been my happy place. And it would just kind of reset. And if it didn't work, I'd get out. If it did work, then I could carry on. And then if I struggled again, I'd just do it again for a few minutes right. and then I'd carry on again. And it just worked really well. Um, and then I went, ended up going to trial. So that was when I was reclassified again to an S5. And which that was is, kind which of... Which is where you're still at to this day. You're still at the S5 yeah. to this day. Yeah. So that kind of shocked me because I, I knew that I was a lot more disabled than I was. But actually having it written down in paper and going, like, it's kind of unheard of to drop four classifications in swimming or in any okay. sport and to go from a nine to a five unfortunately there are people that cheat in swimming not just i think in para para sport it's not as much drug cheats it's classification it's mis- intentional misrepresentation unfortunately a big issue so when someone like me drops um classification like drops from an s9 to an s5 straight away it gets a lot of attention yeah yeah there's athletes that i knew for years that ignored me because they thought i was cheating like some of them ignored me for years until they realized um so I lost a lot of friendships. I honestly didn't, I didn't really know how to approach it and how to approach people. And I didn't feel like I should have to justify the fact that I've got a progressive condition. No, absolutely there's, not. Yeah. there's a magazine, an American magazine, absolutely hate. I think it's terrible called Swim Swam online. Right. And they write articles about all like swimmers, able-bodied and para in a way, and they have a comment section that's unmanned. So they write it in a way that's, that's always safe on social media so it yeah. like they do it in a way that's going to make you react so they don't write all the facts they do it in a way that makes people angry so they're going to write so it wasn't just me that got classified that time there were other athletes so it wasn't just aimed at me but there were so many comments saying oh she's cheating oh like oh how can she be an s5 she doesn't have muscle wastage well if you knew what dystonia was that my muscles are always switched on mm-hmm. you would know why i don't have loads of muscle wastage like if you knew that I had a progressive condition, you would know that I am actually more disabled now. Like if you watch the live stream of me swimming, you would see how much I struggle. And they were saying things like, oh, she's going to break all the world records straight away and all this stuff. It took me three years to break the world records. Like it wasn't straight away. Yeah. Um, and it was just that thing that I felt like everyone was staring at me thinking I was a cheat. And I'm not a cheat. Like I wasn't cheating, but it's so hard when it happens so frequently, it's so hard to prove that you're not a cheat because mm-hmm. people think you are. Um, but I ended up getting reclassified. And then at that meet, I surprised everyone and I qualified for Europeans in 2018. And that was mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, okay, this is um, weird. I didn't really know how I felt about it. I didn't really want to be around British at that point because like the coach had been sacked. A mm-hmm. lot of the staff had changed, but I was still worried that it was going to be it similar. It was still associated. Yeah, you still had that association with it. Yeah. And obviously with the PTSD, again, I was in denial about it at that time. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. Like, because um, to start with, I would panic every time I drove towards Manchester. Every time I got into Manchester, I'd panic. And then it got to the point where I kind of got numb to it. And I wasn't happy about being in Manchester, but I could drive into Manchester without any symptoms. Um, and then the first time I went to the pool, I had a panic attack. But then it got to the point where it was fine. 
but with City of Manchester, we swam upstairs in the main level pool. We're mm. swimming underground. So it's completely enclosed, like you can't see it. And um, when I made the Europeans team, I had to go train downstairs for a week as like kind of like we had like a mini holding camp thing to get everyone that was going to be on European team together. And that was like, I really struggled, like going downstairs again, obviously the same, but looked exactly the same. Like there were some yeah. people that were similar, like the same people, mostly were new, but I just couldn't cope with it. Like it was really difficult to cope with. And that was kind of the first time I realized and actually accepted that I had PTSD. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, that was really difficult. So I went to Europeans Unfortunately, I had to get reclassified again because dropping so many classifications meant that they wanted to make sure that I wasn't a cheat. Mm -hmm. So I was reclassified at... Especially, um, I assume all the noise doesn't help at that time as well because no. once you get reclassified and then everybody else starts going, they're cheating. I suppose they, they almost have to do it again to sort of prove themselves oh, yeah, as well that they've not done it wrong. Obviously, like, I was really nervous about going to Europeans. And yeah. seeing people that I hadn't seen since 2015, and I'm thinking that I'm a cheat. Like, I was like, I don't know how to react. Like, what if someone else has a go at me? Like, I was just like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, what if people call me cheat? Like, what if, like, I don't know. Like, I was just, it was going around in my head. Like, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what to do. Um, and unfortunately, the classifiers that I got at Europeans didn't know what Estonia was, didn't know how to test for it, didn't know how, basically, for me, the more I try and move, the more dystonic I get. So the more I think about movement, the harder it is for me to move and the worse my movement is. So when I'm swimming really slowly, I'm less dystonic than when I'm swimming at high speeds. Okay. So in the water test, if you get me to only swim at low speeds, I don't look that dystonic. If you get me to swim at race pace, I'm way worse. My control's a lot worse. But at that point, I hadn't really clicked in my mind that I should ask them to do quicker stuff. So we did threshold, which is like 50 beats below max. Okay. But threshold isn't really enough to show the full extent of my dystonia when I'm racing. Because obviously this is all about racing, not about training for reclassification. <laughs> and um, then because we had so many S6 swimmers, there's only three that can swim at a time for one country. So I was put up to a six and it was really annoying. I was put one mark into an S6 category. And they'd, they'd done things like they'd, they said I had movement in my left ankle, which I've got proof that I have no movement from my medical evidence. Mm -hmm. So we were able to appeal on that grounds, um, but we didn't actually end up having to appeal because when they watched me race, they picked it up straight away and brought me back into reclassification. Yeah. The issue was that my main race was on day one, the 200 freestyle, and because to, you have to be watched in competition and they have to see you in a freestyle event, but there were four other S6s and they were all quicker than me. So they weren't going to, GB weren't going to pull out another S6 so that I could swim to try and get reclassified back down to an S5. Yeah. So I literally had to wait until day five to race. They saw me, um, picked me up straight away, and then I went um, that like afternoon, they put me into another test, another water test, and they literally made me swim about 2,000 metres of max swim. Like, exhausted me just to see what happens when I swim at max for a long time. And obviously you're um, European champs right now, so you're trying yeah, to save oh, as yeah. much energy as possible. And this is day five, and my 53, the S5 50 freestyle was a final only. So I did all this stuff. They put me back down to an S5, and the same day, within a few hours, I had to then race the 50 freestyle final. Jesus. <laughs> and obviously I was emotionally drained. I was exhausted. I was feeling pretty defeated um, by being put up to an S6. And um, I raced... 
and it wasn't a great time for me. I came third. So the next day I got in and it was the 100 freestyle West 5. And my first 50, bearing in mind this is defeat, not to hand, so defeat should be slower, mm-hmm. was two and a half seconds quicker than what I did the day before and it would have won gold by over a second. <laughs> but it was like I was so emotionally drained and stressed yeah. and fatigued. Um, so it wasn't a great experience for me, but I was like, you know I, what? At least I'm through that, it now. The the thing that amazes me, and I don't know if you pick it up, and I I think the listeners probably pick it up because they they're a lot more like me than you in the fact that we're not superhuman. Uh, we you were you're like I'm disappointed. I got third in a final. That's a medal, and you're like ah. Oh. But I knew that I could win. That was the thing. Like when you know that you're quick enough to win, and something goes wrong. But like, you, you're always going to beat yourself up for it and always going to be like, oh, I should have won that. That is, that is that mentality that I think really separates people from the elite. Because, yeah. like, you... Like, this, this, is 20, this is 2018. In 2016, you've committed to never swimming again. And like you said, yeah. you've, just, you've just accepted it and moved into halls and you're like, okay, I'm now going to be Tully Kearney without swimming. And then in two years, you've gone... Actually, sag that, I am an incredible person and I love swimming. I want to be the best swimmer. I want people to know me as the best swimmer. And you're back on a European Championship podium within two years. That's, that's phenomenal. That was really like the first time I was like, you know what, maybe I could go, like, because I kind of given up with the fact that I was going to go to Paralympics. Like, I, that, the one thing I always wanted was to be able to call myself Paralympian. Mm-hmm. So I missed out on London 2012 because I just played my shoulder at trials. I missed out mm-hmm. on Rio because I had to withdraw. So I was like, you know, I was, I didn't want to get my hopes up because I didn't want a similar thing to happen. But I was like, you know what? Maybe I could, like, maybe I, I can get my titles back and, you know, maybe I can keep getting quicker and try and be the best in the world again. Like, even though I'm never going to be able to do five individual swims again and I was only doing freestyle events. Um, so like, I had a maximum of three medals, which unfortunately they keep taking the 50 freestyle out of the Paralympics for an S5 which is infuriating to me because an S5 is one of the most disabled out of all of the swimmers. And you leave a 200 freestyle in, but you take away a 50 freestyle, the one event that's the easiest for anyone to swim and that every single classification has, and you take it out of an S5 twice. They take it out in Tokyo and in Paris. And it's quite weird as well because it's kind of... I suppose that's kind of like your version of the 100 metres like in athletics. Yeah which is the big one everybody wants to watch, especially in the regular it's Olympics. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's the one everybody sort of tunes in for. That's the one where people who don't watch athletics all the time pretend they know what they're talking about. And they're like, this is the, this is the year Usain Bolt's going to lose because I've read these three articles that have absolutely nothing to do with it. But it's yeah, that is, that is baffling they take that out. Yeah, it's the, for me, it's the most exciting race because there, there's enough of us for three heats at Worlds, but at the Paralympics, we have to swim up as an S6. So it's infuriating. Um, but they take loads of the S3 and S4 events out too because they say there's not enough of them. But there are. There are enough of, of us for an S550, especially with S3 and S4 swimmers swimming up so that they okay. can actually race it. Um, which, so if your event isn't included, you can swim up as a less impaired okay. swimmer. So you, could, so you could be like somebody that focuses on fly, but say you're an S3 fly, mm-hmm. but they, they don't do that. You could go, okay, you I will compete in S4. Yeah. Okay. So Ellie Chalice is an S3 British swimmer. Mm-hmm. And in, in Tokyo, she was in my S500 freestyle because there wasn't an S3 or an S4 race. So she swam the heat and, as an S3, but obviously in an S5 race. So she's at a massive disadvantage, but it meant that she got that fun swim that she wanted for the heat. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's, yeah. it's to your advantage. So 
depending on programs, my plan for uh, Paris, if it fits, is to try and swim the 53 as an S6, just okay. so that I've got, you know, like a fun event. Because I love swimming the 50. And also, like, the relays for the lower classifications are 20-point relays, 50 metres. So okay. that's, um, you know, something that I like doing. And that was kind of the biggest things in Tokyo. And one of the biggest things I've learned is from being an S9 to an S5, there's a lot less opportunities for a, for a more disabled athlete, for a high support needs athlete. We're not actually, I didn't realize being an S9, I was kind of oblivious to the fact that the lower classifications, lower than an S6, has never been included in the Commonwealth. Um, there's things like, you know, when, when there's small camps and competitions where there's maybe only two or three members of staff from the governing body going, they can't really take us because we need support on the plane. We need support to get food to some, some people need support to get dressed. We need support to get race suits on, get in the water, get out of the water. Like there's not enough staff when they're taking a small group to support people like me. So we do that's miss crazy. out. Um, and it is, that's, like, we're that's, not that's very weird. Cause I, I, I'm thinking this from what might be a very naive perspective, but surely there would be, I know it's difficult because say when you've got real, you can't really take a volunteer out of their life that much. But like, you'd think there would be these people that are willing to, like, for example, like mine, if somebody was like, you can come along to GB and all you do is make sure these people get from A to B. Like you are literally just their pair of hands so they don't have to use their hands. Like I would, I would sign up for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we, we do have some stuff like that, but they've generally yeah. like PhD students or master students that are working with them for extremists. So mm -hmm. like everyone, like the soft tissue therapists, nutritionists, Sports science, they all kind of have to step in and help us. So they, okay. they, they have multiple roles that may meet. But um, they're still, especially with racing suits, for females, it's got to be a female member staff. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be males. Yeah. And there's a lot more females that need help than males, but there's more male members of staff, I think, at the minute than there are females. And we've gone through a merge. So British swimming is now one team. We're not para swimming, diving, water polo, and swimming separate. We're all one, um, including artistic swimming. So we've got a lot of staff members that have to work between all of the disciplines. So sometimes we're racing at very similar times or at the same time in different countries or at different places. So yeah. we only have six members of staff that work for para swimming. The rest wow. have to switch between all the sports. So it is really hard to balance it and to get all the support you need. So it kind of made me realize as well, like someone like me, is it a disadvantage? Because I can't like some of the camps, being a centre athlete, when there's podium potential camps, we can go on them if we self-travel. I can't self-travel. So then I have to see if I can travel with the podium potential group, which isn't always possible. And it's not usually like if there's a, a competition, we go from Manchester because the performance centre is at Manchester. Mm -hmm. When it's like a podium potential, it goes from London. So then I've got to go make my own way to London. <laughs> so it's just so like... Travel, yeah. yeah. It's just difficult. Um, and the biggest thing for me is there's so many kids out there, not just in swimming, athletics, like other sports, like the frame running I do for cross training, that I've realised like there's so many kids that because there's not many of us more severely disabled athletes or people like me with progressive conditions that get back into it and continue, they're not really shown what they can do. Like, for example, I know a family in Birmingham that have got two disabled sons and their sons, if they watch the TV, one of them, yeah, like he loves wheelchair basketball and he plays wheelchair basketball. But the other one, like he wouldn't be looking at TV and saying, oh, they look like me. Maybe I could do that sport. But 
if disabled kids that have got more severe impairments are looking at the TV, watching the Paralympics, watching Europeans, watching whatever, and they're like, well, they they look like me, they're in wheelchairs, but they're not like me. Like, I'm more disabled than they are. Mm-hmm. What are they going to think? They're going to think, well, I can't swim. So, like, the biggest yeah. thing is, like, if they can't see us, how can they know that they can swim? How can they know that they can do frame running, botcher, like, whatever it is, if they don't know that it actually exists and that people that, is, are, that are as disabled as they are actually do it and that was like the biggest thing for me in tokyo was the first time we ever had enough low class swimmers to do a 20 point relay i mean yeah we came last in the heats which is what we kind of expect or was it the finals yeah we came last in the finals we made the finals came last but that was we didn't care about yeah the aim wasn't to win that race yeah no it was about getting the public and we had a really good interview after we had uh will perry who's a dwarf essex Mm-hmm. myself who's obviously s5 with sarah poles in estonia and then we had lyndon longhorn and ellie chalice who both had meningitis and they're both um lyndon's a triple amputee and ellie is she's an s4 ellie's an s3 and she's a quadruple amputee from having meningitis and i think that was a really powerful message to show other people at home and like little kids that might be watching or even adults or teenagers that want to get into swimming for fun even if you've got a severe impairment if you want to swim, it's there for you. And I think that's a really powerful message. And it was one of my biggest frustrations that I've noticed being now being more disabled is that it's so much when you've got a more like a less like not as severe impairment, like you're an amputee or have very mild cerebral palsy, it's so much easier to get into sport and you don't necessarily need all the expensive equipment or you don't need as much like support or you know, as much adaptation to fit into an A-Wally club. For someone like with my level of disability, you don't fit into a club like I'm the same speed as like seven and eight year olds. Um, because I don't have use of my legs or my upper body fully. So it's difficult and it's difficult to fit in and find where you fit and you know, find the equipment. Like for athletics, the equipment is so expensive and kids grow out of it so quickly. Um, but I just thought that was really important that people see us because like that quote earlier, if you can't see us, how do you know when be us? Yeah. I think I think you've put that really beautifully. Actually, that's actually made me quite emotional how you've worded that, and you've you've given such a compelling argument for it as well. And what I think was really prevalent there when you said about it is when you spoke about your team interview after the the relay, it was a or the medley, sorry, the medley relay. You you said that you had all these people with these different disabilities as part of one team. And what you did there was you actually show that although these kids might end up feeling alone, like you say, because they have this disability, and nine times out of ten, there's probably only one disabled kid per probably two or three classes in a school. Mm. But you're showing that, that like you, you guys do come together and you do have these people that are like you and you have these friends that might not be right next to you or have the same conditions as you, which is yeah. it's, it's beautiful. I think you've... I I completely agree with you. I think there should be... The Paralympics is a celebration of what all these incredible superhumans do. And like you said, you should be you should be showing the extremes of that. You should be showing these people like these a, a quadruple amputee is swimming in the elite competitions. Yeah, this is incredible. Yeah. Like somebody that's been told they can't move their legs, they can't move their arm, their their shoulders are like you say, you're dealing with pain every day. You're you're bringing home medals for fun and it's it's really inspirational and it is it's so impressive and I want to talk to you. So the reason I changed the name of this podcast to Refuse to Fail from over in 80 minutes, which is what it was and what you've seen at this time of recording on the Instagram, which is probably why you're confused what it says Refuse to Fail up on the top. But it was um, 
the the quote I have. So I've started asking people about quotes because the quote I have, and I think I may have made up, but I probably heard it somewhere, so I don't claim it as my own. It is everybody wants to succeed nowadays. The one to succeed isn't enough. You have to refuse to fail. And I think your refuse to fail moment was when you got back in that pool. Would you yeah. say that was your refuse to fail moment? Yeah. I love that. I think yeah, it's definitely. really good. But now we're going to talk about a really happy point or what I think would be a happy point for you. 2019, so you're now back in the pool. You've done the European Champs. Mm -hmm. 2019, you became a triple world champion. Yeah. That is, a, that is the coolest sentence I think I've ever said to anybody right. in my life. That is unbelievable. How was that year for you? Because at this point, are you at Loughborough? No, um, not no, in so 2019, no. So, I was so, you're, still... so you're not even a student athlete of the Loughborough programme yet. You're still Manchester at this point. Yeah. So wow. I was still doing my undergrad degree. I actually graduated in 2019. Um, still under Graham <laughs> I'm thinking about what I was doing as an undergrad and I was not a triple world champion. <laughs> <laughs> so That's unbelievable. That was actually quite a tricky season for me because immediately after Europeans, at the end of September, I had bilateral shoulder surgery. Um, of course you did, because why make it any more difficult than it needs to be? <laughs> Which was obviously like a difficult decision, but I knew that if I wanted to get to Tokyo, that was the only way I was going to get there because my shoulders weren't good, like they needed fixing. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, I fixed the joint issues. Kind of a, a common thing with me is you fix something and you find something else wrong. <laughs> so I've still got ongoing issues with, luckily it's only my right shoulder now, but my tendons... From like obviously all the swim all the years, the repetitive overhead movement, swimming through injuries, the fact that like, the last five years I've been a full-time wheelchair user, and like before that I used to put all my weight onto crutches, like when I used a walker and wheelchairs, my arms never get a rest, my shoulders never get a rest. So like from all this overuse, I've got quite a lot of damage to quite a few of my like three out of four of my rotator tendons. So <laughs> my shoulders aren't great, but um the good thing was that having the surgery actually massively reduced the nerve pain. It almost completely got rid of it um, to the point where I didn't need nerve blocks anymore because I was having nerve blocks to help me get through so that I could actually function as a human being and sit in lectures and train. But every time you have a nerve block, it damages some of that connection. So you can't actually, the brain can't connect to the muscle as well. So like every time you have it, you're basically getting rid of part of your muscle function which obviously isn't great. I was having it every three months for a few years. So like every single time um, you're having a, a permanent impact on the function of your muscle, um, which obviously for someone who uses their arms all the time and needs them isn't great. So like having the surgery was amazing. It fixed that issue. However, I think everyone kind of underestimated how long it takes me to recover. The surgeon was like, oh, wait, you can get back in the water after a month and do a leg kick. And I was like, well, I can't kick. I've so, you know, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think after like two months I was doing like standing up in the water, like leaning against the wall and doing like arm movements, like rehab stuff with the physio. And that was great. Um, so at that point I decided that I needed to move back down to the center, which was obviously a tough, a tough decision. So that's when I started with Graham Smith again. Um, that was really daunting. <laughs> and obviously like with the PTSD and dealing with everything, mm -hmm. that was a really hard decision, but I knew that I couldn't get the support I needed because at that point there was a physio, um, I'd obviously known for many years and he was there every single day every single session so you like if you turned up and you weren't ready to swim you could see the physio and then just come back for the evening session just swap sessions okay. so it's kind of what I needed and I needed like I was doing rehab every single day with him so it was it was kind of I just needed just needed to do it which obviously I was gutted to 
So I was really happy where it was. Uh, with City Manchester and MMU with Jim, but it's just sometimes you've just got to do stuff just for the better of obviously your career. Um, and I really like it. Took me a long time to get back into it. Like with cerebral palsy, like I was always told when I was younger, as soon as you stop using muscles, you're gonna lose them. And it's always taken me so much longer than anyone else to build muscle. I think that's quite typical for cerebral palsy. Um, but yeah, the fact that I couldn't move and because I had both shoulders done at once so that I could recover and be all right with Tokyo and have a full training season. Like I literally couldn't move at all for a month like because I need my arms to even get out of bed and like sit up. Mm-hmm. So I'd lost so much strength and the nerve pain actually. So the joint issue was causing nerve pain. So my dystonia was reacting and it was actually causing a lot of tone. So I had really tight muscles but it was from my dystonia. So as soon as you got rid of the surgery, got rid of the pain, I was then really weak because what I was using was my dystonia to move. So oh, like, wow. I, kind of like, I don't know if anyone's seen like kids with cerebral palsy can have a surgery called SDR, selective dorsal rhizotomy, where they literally cut the sensory nerves and it gets rid of the most of the spasticity. However, you'll see that it takes them one to two years to recover because they use that spasticity, the tightness, to actually walk and move. So when you get rid of that, they have no strength underneath because there's so many muscles that they've never been able to use. It didn't work. So it was kind of a similar thing that I had the surgery and I don't regret it. It was great. But I then didn't have any strength. All the strength that I was using to move and swim was gone. Um, So it took me about eight months to get anywhere near as strong as I needed to be. And it's still an issue I struggle now is being strong enough not to get injured. Um, It's an ongoing battle, which is quite infuriating. it really, the surgery really made my quality of life much better. So I wouldn't change it for anything, even though it's been a struggle. Um, so I didn't that's, really that, That's an interesting one, because that's you weighing up Tully Kearney, the person, yeah. against Tully Kearney, the, the athlete. Which well, I, think, I, think, I think you've made a right choice there, because you're, yeah. you're looking after yourself, like, there, definitely. Pre-Rio, all I cared about was Tully Kearney, the athlete. Yeah. Post-Rio, like with everything that went on, my number one priority now is me as a person. Like I'm not, go- I'm not willing to do anything that's going to risk permanent damage to my body because I need my body after sport. I'm not going to swim forever. And I've realized that swimming isn't everything. Like I love swimming and it's something I, I want to do for a good few more years to come, but I'm not going to do it at a detriment to my health because it's not worth it. Like, I learned that the hard way. Um, and as well, like I haven't got that much function left to lose. Like I don't want to be more disabled than what I am. Like I want to be able to function as a human being and have a nine to five job and, you know, be able to do stuff I want to do and enjoy life as an adult um so that was kind of where my mind's at now it has really changed like everything that's happened has really changed my mindset and something that like I say a lot to young athletes is that it's really difficult when you've got coaches doctors your governing body like you've got everyone that effectively is in charge of your funding and your payment and like your level in sport and selecting you for things telling you to just get another steroid injection and race through and do this and do that and it's it's really difficult to say no to that um and also to realize at a young age how much damage that can potentially cause but it's really important for athletes to actually have a say and and for doctors to actually realize how much damage that can cause because a 15 16 17 18 year old isn't going to think oh you know i've severely damaged my hip but i'm going to swim through it not thinking about oh am i going to actually be able to walk when i'm older like is this going to cause me arthritis or chronic pain every day like they're not going to think that way um so i think it's really important that the governing bodies actually think about that but also that the the young athletes grow up knowing that they can say no 
They yeah. don't have to just agree to swim through injuries and agree to swim through injuries. They, it's their body. They have to think about what's right for them and what's right for the rest of their life, not just their career. And and really make an informed decision about what am I going to do? Am I going to risk it or am I going to be sensible and give my body the rest it needs? I agree. And I think you put that perfectly as well, that that's also on the coaches as much as it is on or coaches and yeah. managers and teams, organisers as much as it is the athlete. Because sometimes a coach's job is to protect an athlete from himself. Because yeah. an athlete will be, oh, an athlete will think, I need to do this. Because like you say, like funding comes into part of it. You're like, oh, I, I yeah. stopped getting the money if I stop racing. But Especially like when you train, yeah. when you train at a performance centre where your coach is the governing body coach, the GB coach, that yeah. is the issue as well because they want you to win medals and keep winning medals, so they keep their jobs and we keep the funding. Yeah. So, yeah. so sometimes it's definitely a lot better than it used to be, but previously we were seen as a number and a way to keep their medals. Keep we weren't the job, seen yeah. as totally the human being, whereas the new coach we have in Manchester now is amazing and his one his first priority is mental health. Second priority is physical health. Third priority is training. And that is the way that coaches need to be. And I love the fact that they've brought him in. He's honestly the best fit, the best person they could have brought in as um, to replace um, like for a coach that we needed. And um, and I think a lot, I'm hoping, like obviously him being the coach of the centre, that other coaches that have got para-athletes around the country that come and train at Manchester for days to use the equipment and the services we have at the centre will actually see oh yeah this is the way it should be with my athletes and is a really good role model for that mm-hmm. because it doesn't in in most sports it doesn't happen there's so many coaches that don't prioritize their athletes well-being and it's so important it's the most important thing because not only the fact obviously their emotional physical social mental well-being should be the most important thing anyway if they're not happy and they're not healthy they're not going to swim well anyway are they or compete well in whatever sport they do i i agree yeah you're not if you're not healthy yeah it's like you wouldn't let somebody swim if they broke their arms so if somebody's not feeling right why would you not let them like why would you let them yeah. swim i think that's the thing like with mental health as well like we need to be looking at it like that and we don't i think it's, it's definitely getting better and it's way different than it was 10 years ago when i was like growing up and starting in the sport but it's definitely something we need to work at i could not i could not agree more and yeah i think once again you exactly the right words to say in the situation because you've experienced it you've lived it you've analyzed it and you've seen it get better and you see the steps it has to go to get better and like even better so that is truly remarkable and like so tell me more about the difficulty of that year in 2019 because as i said when i yeah. sounded i made it sound ridiculously simple of you won a lot more medals and became a world champion but you said it was there but how was those those events at the world championships because i'm going to talk about madeira as well in 2022 mm. just last year which was another ridiculous tally which we'll get <laughs> on to but so yeah like talk, talk talk me through 2019 just like briefly like just sort of bullet point 2019 where you won it how you won it and then the emotion that came through each one so i was nervous about my fitness i hadn't i'd been in the pool for 12 weeks mm-hmm. um we'd gone on a training camp just before in like as like a holding camp in italy and I did like one stand-up swim and it was terrible and I was in loads of pain and like the coach, my, my coach looked at me and was like, Oh God. But Graham had so much confidence in me that he knew what I could do better than anyone. And he, I now know that British swimming actually tried to pull me from the world's team at that point. And he said, no, he fought for me and was like, no, she's fine. Like she'll do it because he knows that I'm kind of weird. I am a natural racer. Like I get behind the blocks and it's taken me years to get to the point because I used to be terrible when I used to get too anxious and stressed. And then I would get 
my dystonia would flare up and I get too stiff to swim. Um, mm-hmm. And then my stroke would be terrible and I'd swim really slowly. But I'm just like, I can't, it's hard to explain. I get behind the block and it's like a, a switch flips and I'm just there, like I'm in race mode. And I have to be in a very, very bad way to not be able to race well. Like even like Tokyo, I had a really serious injury and I still swam well. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of, for me, it's kind of a mental battle. It's like, I know I'm not fully fit, especially for the long distances. It's more the mental battle of I'm in race mode, but I can't go flat out because I'll die because my fitness isn't good. So that was kind of the biggest challenge for me is like, don't go crazy, especially on the 200, because you will die and people will catch up and beat you and you probably won't finish the race. Mm-hmm. So um, that was kind of the biggest thing, but we kind of ch- tried something. So after the surgery, because I couldn't swim much, I finally gave in to my mate, Hannah Dines, um, and she'd been bugging me for years to try frame running, which is, it's athletics and it's like a three wheel frame. If you imagine a trike, um, mm-hmm. it's a three, one wheel at the front, two wheels at the back, quite a wide frame. It's the, it's the one with the really long wheel at the front, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's on like, like an almost... bike wheel. It's yeah. like a, a 700C bike wheels. They run mm-hmm. off at least the size I need because I'm quite tall. Um, and basically it's got a seat, like a bike seat, but instead of pedals, there's nothing there and you're leaned forward on a chest plate. So the frame's taken all your body weight and it was made for people too severe, um, too severely impaired. Basically, pay, people with cerebral palsy that were too severely impaired to do wheelchair racing. There was a wheelchair okay. racer who invented it who was paralysed, but her friends had cerebral palsy, but they were too disabled to do wheelchair racing, so they did throwing, but they wanted to do something physically active. So she basically invented this, and it's honestly an incredible sport that I love. Um, and it's so good to get like kids that can't walk, you put them on a frame, and they can walk around the garden. Like they can run, like it's just incredible. It gives them that freedom to move at their own pace and not be in an electric wheelchair all day. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, I started, she took me down to the track where her frame was kept, introduced me to Stockport Wheelchair Racing Club, and she let me borrow her frame for eight months until I got mine built. Um, and I just fell in love with it. Like, because I've never been good, I've never been able to use my legs for stuff. I've never been, ne- never been able to run, play football, stuff like that. Um, so I was actually able to run, like for the first time in my life at the age mm-hmm. of, what like 19 i was able or 19 20 i was like actually able to run which was kind of insane to me um and i just love it like in the water i'm just armed so it was a way to use my legs it because it's so much harder for me to move my legs my heart rate is way higher so i can get the cardiovascular benefits without having to do as much um and it was kind of a test of like obviously i need to swim but i can't swim very much i can't do much intensity because of my shoulder so how much can we play around with on track and how much cross training can we do? And honestly, it obviously worked perfectly because I went to Worlds really nervous, not knowing where my fitness was at because I wasn't able to swim quick and test it in the pool because my shoulder wasn't ready until literally like the days before racing. Um, so I got there and I think the 50 freestyle was first and I knew it was going to be a tight race. The, the sprints are always really tight races and the heats I did a PB. I was like, okay this is actually but 50 is quite easy to, it's not an easy event but in terms of endurance you don't need that much endurance to do a sprint 50 like a lot of people when they retire from swimming can still do a very quick 50 because okay. it's realistically it's, 30 seconds or under if you like it's it's a short race yes it's more um, muscle memory and power than it is yeah yeah um but i got into the final i pb'd again on one and i was like okay this is really cool <laughs> i was like this is like the quickest quick as anyone had ever gone um like for years quickest in europe but also the quickest anyone as an s5 had done in absolute years because again the world records were very quick but they hadn't no one had touched them in some of them even 20 years like no one had been anywhere near them mm-hmm. 
can't remember what was next. It was either the 200 or the 100. But then I won another one. And then I was like, oh, okay, actually, my fitness isn't too bad. Like, this is actually pretty cool. Maybe Graham was right. Like, maybe he was right that I could win all these. Um, and then it was kind of like, oh, God, I've got one left. And I was like, well, I don't want to put too much pressure on myself because I don't want to, like, you know, get too stressed and anxious and, like, not win. But also, how cool would it be to win all three of my races? Like, I only had three races. How cool would it be to win all three of them? Um, and then obviously it happened. So I think that was the biggest thing for me is like, oh, well, actually, this is probably a way forward. Cross training actually works really well. Like I haven't swum very much at all, but I've raced really well. My fitness is really good. And that's kind of like where I started to work with British swimming. At first, they weren't really that happy and weren't convinced. And I had to buy a Garmin and wear a heart rate monitor every single session and compare it to my swim heart rate data to prove that it actually has a cardiovascular benefit because they didn't believe me. <laughs> um, but now they accept it as part of my training. So it's obviously a, a hard thing, but no, it's it's become an integral part, like a really important part, especially pre-Tokyo and Madeira in 21. Um, it's, yeah, it is literally the only way that I can be fit enough. And especially like in blocks, like normally winter training, I train more on land, like on the track than I do at the pool. That's, I love that one. Do you think... So, so when that that comes across to me in that brain, do you think the the cross training would have been beneficial throughout, or do you think you really had to get that that nailed down of the swim first? Because obviously, when you're you're out the pool, you're not practicing the stroke, and obviously you mm -hmm. have to learn that muscle memory. So, would you obviously the, the cross training is clearly beneficial? Because I'm not going to argue with three world championships. Um, but do you think you could have had that same success doing that throughout, or do you think you needed to have that purely swimming focus? And then, like, would you would you recommend it as a more transitional thing to bring in as you grow in the sport? It, I think it's better for, like, when I was younger, I could easily cope with 20 hours a week in the pool. Like, that was mm -hmm. fine. Um, I think it's more for, you know, athletes that are older, lower classifications, like for me, that struggle to mm -hmm. physically cope with the demand. And, you know, because I think the issue when I was first classified as an S5, coaches were like well i know this guy from germany and she does like 17k a week and you're only doing five and i'm like well yeah but she's got a spine injury it's different yeah. <laughs> you know like her the part of the body that does work works works normally like she can recover quicker um so it was kind of like trying to not be compared to other people that can be obviously everyone's different but <laughs> especially for me and i think the years i think the reason it works is because i've got muscle memories from all the years like i started training when i was eight yeah. Um, and I started ramping up the volume when I was 13. So I had like a good five, six year block of a crazy amount of meters. Um, and I think that's given me a good baseline because I can get fit really quickly. Um, so I think if someone was coming into sport and trying to cross train, I don't know how effective it would be. But if someone like look at Adam Peaty, like with his broken ankle, broken foot, yeah. like it's proved like lockdown. If you look at the athletes that actually did training during lockdown, that did running, cycling, whatever, like got pools in the back garden they competed way better at the olympics paralympics than the athletes did nothing like it does have an effect it definitely has an effect um and it made our transition when we're allowed back into training much smoother and easier so i think like you know if there's a time where you can't swim you've got an injury you decide to have surgery you've broken your foot or you know like me you've got dodgy shoulders because you've trained all these years and you're trying to protect your shoulders or like, you know, like sometimes swimmers can be like backs, knees, necks. If you've got an injury or like something that's prone to injury, I think it's a really good thing to look into, look into cross training. And especially if your sport is causing you pain, but 
there's got to be another way around it. That's kind of, for me, like there's always another way. And frame running for me is, has been that other way. And obviously cross training is not going to work for any, everyone, but if you've got an athlete that can't physically put in the hours that's needed to be as fit as they need to be, then why not look at something else? Mm-hmm. I've, once again, I've, the proof's in the pudding. You've smashed it. You're doing that. And now we're going to talk to, we're going to talk about what I consider to be the ha ha I told you so moment for you which is everything sort of like come together we've had such adversity you've had initial success that you've had to work on you've been rewarded with that then like I said we had 2016 which was a horrible year for anybody to go through then you've had London European Championships we get to Madeira and I'm just going to read this out for the listeners here so you were competing at Madeira this is another world champs you've we're doing three individual events and one mixed event. Your worst finish in the in the whole thing was second. That was your worst finish in all of the races you did that weekend or that week. How you broke three world records, and one of them, like you said, was 22 years old. So that is ludicrous. How how does it feel when I read that back to you? Crazy. Well, unbelievable. <laughs> Do you know how I know that you mean that? Because you have answered everything with so much detail in it and you just it's, it's crazy. I, there's only one word for it. I think how... it's, like, it's unheard of. You don't really hear of an athlete going to a major champs and breaking a world record in all three of their individual races. <laughs> uh, you don't hear people going, and you very rarely hear people doing and doing it in one, never mind three. Yeah. So... That's how was that those that collection of days for you, and then does it feel? How did how did it feel breaking the first world record? Hmm. And then how did it feel when you broke the third one after you? It was kind of, It was a weird meet for me because after Tokyo with the restructure British swimming, my coach Graham Smith was made redundant, and I always I relied on him. Like I said earlier, he knew what to say to me. I relied on that too much, and it was mm-hmm. really difficult. So that was like my first international not having him there. And I kind of didn't really know what to do with myself. Like I was really struggling and I felt like, I kind of felt like no one had my back. Like I really had to fight for myself. Um, Cause originally I was supposed to do more relays. And then because of my shoulder injury, they withdrew me. Cause again, I had another injury. Unfortunately, like that season, um, I swam really well at the German open in Berlin. And that was my first time that, like since I first raced there 11 years before that I went back. And so that was like an incredible experience. Swam really well, broke a world record in the 53. And that was my first time in years racing without a physio support, like without actually a physio or soft tissue therapist being there. So that was like a really big achievement for me. Unfortunately, getting back, we didn't have consistent coaches. Like when my coach was made redundant, we had um, three coaches rotating to trainers. So there was a lack of communication and I wasn't rested after racing, which for me is a massive thing to protect my shoulder. Mm-hmm. So I ended up with quite a bad injury um, and had to swim through it because again, every day like every other day or every day sometimes it was a different coach so there wasn't that much that communication there wasn't the consistency of them seeing how much I was struggling um and because of the injury I was left behind from a training camp so we were supposed to go on a training camp for two weeks to Lanzarote and I'd already in February because I didn't go to trials I'd already spent a week at Loughborough Uni to try and I was scoping it out for next season for what like this was supposed to be the September just gone and um so the head coach was like, why don't you just go to Loughborough for two weeks? And I was like, you know what? Okay. Like I got on really well with the coach there. Um, 
one of the athletes there, James Hollis, like I met him in like 2011, so I knew him really well. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'll just go back to Loughborough. You know, it's fine. Go for two weeks. And Not then I've right, still. <laughs> yeah, like obviously this injury was pretty bad. I had a steroid injection, had to wait a week for it to settle mm. before I could actually swim. Um, and this coach was just, he just reminds me so much of Graham. Like Gareth was amazing, the Loughborough coach at the time. Mm-hmm. Like just got me. Like hadn't worked with that many para athletes before. Um, had one S5 summer that he coached towards Tokyo. Um, and that was kind of obviously James, a high classification athlete, but not really had that much experience, but he was willing to learn, willing to listen. And he actually let me have control and say of my training, which is what I was used to. And obviously someone at my level, I know what works and what doesn't. Obviously I want a coach's input and I need a coach's input, but I also like to have my own input into my training and I wasn't getting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big thing for me. And Basically, after the two weeks, I realized I was so much calmer. I had way more energy because of the PTSD. And that's kind of what made me realize how much I still struggle with Manchester. And if I'm in a different environment, my life is easier. Like, I just feel better. I can sleep better. Like, it's just kind of crazy. Um, and I just got on so well that I was like, you know what? I'm not going back. So I just, like, <laughs> I was really nervous. I had a Zoom call and was like, I don't want to come back to Manchester. <laughs> so the plan originally was for me to go back to Manchester and then after Worlds, I was supposed to spend a month in Loughborough as a trial. And then if I like it, move in September. But I ended up staying there for 12 weeks instead. Um, if, it's, if it's the better fit for you, it makes sense to stay yeah. there. Yeah. Obviously, like, going into Worlds, um, I Gareth was really good. I bugged him. Like, I messaged him and phoned him a lot while I was there just for a bit of, like, moral support. But it was my first time since 2015 not having my coach at the meet. And, like, when you're a centre athlete, your coach is at every single camp competition you go to. So suddenly not having them there is really, really difficult. So that was kind of my biggest thing is like, oh, I've got no one here. Like I feel alone. And obviously I wasn't like the other British mm. members of staff were there, like Gareth was there on the other end of the phone. But I was just really nervous and I knew my fitness was really good because I'd done so much track work um, and I'd been working really well with a group in like being in Loughborough, like there's a group in Coventry wheelchair races. So I was training with them and like I knew my fitness was as good as it had been in probably better than it had ever been to be honest like at least for the last six seven years um so I knew going in I had good chance of swimming well I it for me it was more I had to control emotions like I had to try and figure out how to cope without having that one person without having Graham there getting me in the right headspace so that was difficult and also knowing that I needed to protect my shoulder my shoulder wasn't in a great space and it was my first time of having to swim heat smart like purposely swimming slower in the heats and not caring if you get lane four. So obviously like the quicker, because mm-hmm. it's spearheaded, the quickest goes in lane four. But like the biggest thing that was drilled into me, you don't need to be in lane four. You only need to be like within the the top four lanes. If you're in, if you're in the yeah. end lane, it's a bit harder. If you're in the top four lanes, it doesn't matter. So it was purposely swimming slowly in the heats to save my shoulder because swimming slower doesn't hurt my shoulder that much. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I get into the final being all right because that was kind of the issue in Tokyo was I went flat out in the heat and I was in so much pain that it wouldn't settle between heats and finals and then because I was racing day one day two I was just in pain constantly the whole time it didn't settle so swimming slow heats and fast finals actually work really well but it's so difficult when you've got like for me being a natural racer it's so difficult yeah Yeah. Like letting people pass you and letting people turn quicker than you. And it's just, oh, I hate it. I hate it so much, <laughs> uh, which I think is a good trait to have. 
Um, so are you, are you like, talking to yourself in the pool for like these small sections that are you like, it's, yeah. it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And like, I don't swim down because yeah. I can't, with warm-up, racing, and then you've got the finals as well. It's too many meters for my shoulder to cope with, especially when I've got to race multiple days in a row over a 10-day mm-hmm. meet. Um, so I can't swim down. So then we we tried something else. So the new thing was having a really, really like scalding hot shower for 15 minutes and then having soft tissue to get rid of any of the remaining lactics. There's like a flush. Um, and that actually worked really well. So like it was kind of weird. It was kind of trying different things um, and working with different people. And but so again, like it was it was a good learning experience for me. Like even at this age, I'm still learning, <laughs> even at my experience. Um, but yeah, I was just, I was so happy. And like, it was really, that was really the eye opener to me that if I'm happy, how look at how much quicker I can swim. And that's kind of when I knew that Loughborough was the right fit and that at some point I need to make a decision to actually move. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think this has been arguably, I've been very lucky. So I'm, I'm not contracted or anything. So I get to pick and choose who I speak to. I get to pick and choose how long I take between episodes to bring them out. This has been, arguably one of the most inspirational informative i think just all around like it's it's dumbfounding to me all these things that go on like you're talking about you're having these ptsd you're talking about these mental blocks that you're having as well as the physical disabilities that people see and don't see and people acknowledge but they don't really understand and when it all came to this head at madeira and you got these world records you got these gold you got everything it must be. It must just be so rewarding, and obviously, you're not finished yet. Like you said, your your goal still to be Paralympic athlete. I think, like for me, every time, like winning the gold in Tokyo, was kind of like for me. It was like, well, this is a great way to say thank you to everyone that's helped me along the journey. Um, mm-hmm. And then again, like breaking three world records in Madeira. What better way is it to thank Loughborough Uni for taking me in and working with me for twelve weeks than breaking three world records and for me, unfortunately, um, Gareth moved on and he's now a lecturer. Like, honestly, he was such a good coach. I was absolutely gutted. But the fact that my last race, like, with him, well, I actually, I raced in British Summer Championships and I did break world records there. I went even quicker. However, there weren't any drug testers there, so they weren't, they counted as European records, but they're not counted as world records. Um, but, you know, obviously I broke them at Worlds. It gives, gives you a chance to break them again. That's, yeah, that's exactly. But, um, break them I think past. it's really nice for me that, it was kind of like, I mean, he, Gareth doesn't care about his career. He doesn't care about like himself looking good. All he cares about is his athletes, which is obviously what a good coach does. But, you know, like what a great thing for him to have. Like the, the main thing I thought yeah. about was, oh, this is amazing for Gareth because he's got this. He's going to have this on like his CV if he ever tries to work at a swimming club again. Like, I love that. Yeah. I love I love that that's your thought going out of that. <laughs> I think that. I think that says a lot about you as a person as well. And it says a lot about the bond you've grown with Gareth over the years because like, I think another thing that's prevalent throughout this whole conversation we've been talking for two hours and 20 minutes and it's it's shown that you've been thankful for gareth at every stage he's been in your journey and like he says like he's now might be a lecturer but i imagine you'll still get a few phone calls every now and again when you're just needing a word of advice yeah well like the (laughs) the the other week um i raced like just for christmas i raced at corby in their long course meet and Mm -hmm. um i have started i want to try and do the backstroke because i want more medal opportunities and more races because I used to all like the 50, the hundred free used to be my fun event. I was always terrible at sprints. I was a 400 freestyle and 200 medley swimmer basically. Um, and hundred fly eventually. Um, but I was always terrible at the hundred free and the hundred free was the event I always entered. I never medaled. I sometimes didn't even final, but it was a fun event. 
and mm. I miss having that fun event. So I was like, oh, like I'll try it. Like I'll try and get back into backstroke again because I was doing it in 2018, but with the shoulder surgery and everything, we we like to protect my shoulder. We were just focused on freestyle, and then mm. I hadn't swum it in so many years. I didn't have a time, so I couldn't race it. Um, and like major meets because I don't have a time in the rankings because I haven't raced it since mid 2018. <laughs> so I raced it hoping like I kind of had in mind what time I wanted to go like I wanted to go under a minute um and preferably like I wanted to go like around 50 seconds I was like I'm pretty sure I can go between like 48 and 52 seconds uh, and try and build up to get closer to like 46 45 ish by Paris mm-hmm. um you know have it as a potential bronze medal event try and see if I can push for another medal not expecting a silver or a gold but you know if I could get a bronze that's another medal like how cool is that <laughs> And I raced it. Uh, I went 42 seconds. And I'm now ranked number two in the world <laughs> by a good second from me in the third. And number one it was 0.6 of a second ahead of me. And she's actually um, a Turkish swimmer who I'm really good friends with. <laughs> but one good thing is she was actually so nice to me. And she sent me a message congratulating me, which obviously doesn't always happen when you like start beating your friends. Um, mm-hmm. She doesn't usually some freestyle because she's an arm amputee. So she's just legs. Mm-hmm. um we're pretty much the opposite of each other but amp- arm amputees where they're just legs don't really usually do sprint events because they've got a more advantage over the long distances with the turns and the kickoff of balls yeah. like the underwater phase um but she is a backstroker so she doesn't really do freestyle so i don't get to race against her much i'm like oh i get to race against me now like but i'm like oh no she's gonna hate me but actually she's so nice <laughs> but it's just kind of i messaged gareth like i just sent him a screenshot of that and a screenshot of the world rankings and put Oops, this was supposed to be a fun event. <laughs> I wish I could do things and get to second in the world and respond with oops. But that is the perfect place to end the main body of this podcast because it sounds like I'm going to get an excuse to bring you back on in a year or two's time and discuss it all again because, like I said, I've had the most fun, Tully. This has been, like I said, truly inspirational, eye-opening, whatever you want to call it. It's nine almost half an eight on a sunday night and i'm ready to just go and run through a brick wall because you have inspired me endlessly so there's only two two segments let's call them segments left to get through before i can let you enjoy your sunday evening the first one is one you looked a bit worried when i told you that we were first going to do this this is called under the team bus very similar to quick fire all of those minutes ago except this time instead of saying what your answer is you pick the person in the the teams that you've had over the years who most fits this description. Okay. So nice, easy one to start. Who's the most determined? Who has like wire focus? Like, they could be three lengths behind somebody and still think, I'm going to win this race. Andy Mullen, he's a retired for now, but um, he's actually, when I was struggling, he's the one that helped me focus and realize how to get into race mode because I'd never seen anyone like him before. Like, it doesn't matter what's going on. His race mode is just insane. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I love that. Who's the biggest practical joker? Tom Hamer. He is... Sometimes it goes so far that it's infuriating, but he's generally pretty funny. <laughs> Who's the most naturally gifted swimmer you've ever had in the group? Like, who just cuts through water like a You know what? We've got a new swimmer, Poppy Matagal, on S14. She's incredible, like absolutely incredible. And she's still really young. Um, and I don't know exactly how old she is. She's under 18, still at school. Um, she started training as Manchester and she's already beating the like the old girls, like already starting oh, to get up there. She's gonna be absolutely rapid, like one to watch in a few years. Like Katie Ledicky standards of just yeah. Oh, yeah. She's, she's incredible. 
love that. I love that so much. Who's the most clumsy? Who just always forgets things or drops the phone or? Leah, Leah O'Connell. Oh my God, she is <laughs> like. There was one that we have these tiny little polar heart rate monitor sensors that are like the size of like slightly smaller than 10p uh-huh. and dropped it down the, you know, like sometimes pools where the water goes over the, the edge. Drains, like, like, uh... She dropped it down the drain. Like, that was great. And it was never to be seen again. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Who is most up for a night out? I imagine not a lot of you because you're all extreme athletes, but. I have to say Andy again. Andy would party all night, go home, get changed and like not even sleep and just go straight to training. And then sleep after. Michael. <laughs> well, not Michael Jordan meant that. <laughs> Who has the best fashion sense? Who turns up with some pretty cool gear? To be honest, most of us just turn up in sloppy clothes like gym kit or <laughs> we don't really bother. We don't really pay that much. But one okay. had, uh Zach Washington Young, he it's still like tracksuits but he always comes in like fancy matching tracksuits so i'd probably say him. a bit more coordination yeah okay well this might make my next question who's got the worst fashion sense because you can just answer all of you if you all just chuck on whatever's first on the top of the file especially in the mornings it'd be all of us because we just chuck on joggers or like use gym kit if, 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 if somebody tells me to be at pool for 5 a.m i'm not really worried about what i'm wearing <laughs> who's the most gullible like who just believes anything you tell them this is a tie between Leah O'Connell and Ellie Chalice. Poor Leah O'Connell's getting sold a dream. She's... <laughs> that means we'll have to get her on so she can tell us all the embarrassing things you didn't talk about yourself. <laughs> Who is the best dancer? Who just looks most comfortable on the dance floor? I don't think I've seen any of them dance. No, no, oh, they all, uh, you didn't go to the club in Glasgow, so that's why. No. <laughs> no. Okay, well, Miss, I was going to ask you who the worst dancer is then. If you haven't well, answered, actually, it'd probably be Ellie. Ellie Simmons, like, and it's obviously she pretty strictly, but um, yeah. Ellie used to. They used to do all these little like dance videos with Claire Cashmore and Charlotte Henshaw, which both they both moved on to different sports. Um, but they used to do loads of little dance videos like years ago, like TikToks. Yeah. <laughs> TikToks. Before, Ellie Simmons was TikTok before TikTok was famous. I don't know what it was called. It was it was basically like TikTok, but it was before TikTok existed. I don't know what it was, but it was like a like literally like a TikTok. I love that. Oh, like Vine or whatever it was called. Yeah, it was probably Vine. <laughs> God, that makes me feel old saying Vine or whatever it was. I remember that coming out. Uh, who is the future coach? Like who just like they love to help and share wisdom and. Oh. You're always free to say yourself if you do have that one thing where you think, I would no, do that's one thing. Like, I actually, um, I'm now an assistant coach for athletics, but I can't think of anything worse of spending more time of my life at a poolside. Like, I've spent so much time at a poolside, I don't want to be a coach. No thanks. Uh, I don't know, really. There's, there's not really anyone at the minute. I think we're also focused on my careers. There's not really anyone I know of at the minute that's actually that much focused on coaching. Fair play. That's one for the future. Focus on the here and now. Mm. Okay, I was going to ah, that one's, I will miss that one out, that one's a bit more, that, yeah, we can, who's hard as nails, who just looks like they'd win in a fight if, if they ever got in one? Uh, I want to say Reese Dunn. <laughs> yeah, you answered that quickly enough. He's pretty, he's pretty tall, like, big lad. Yeah. Like, uh, very muscly, yeah. <laughs> Anybody that's six foot three, I'm not, I'm not fighting, we're not right. <laughs> Who had a bad lockdown haircut? Like, who came back and their mum had clearly tried to help them with the shears or something? Uh, yeah, it was hard to tell, really, like, because of Zoom. <laughs> They're uh, all wearing caps, so you can't really tell. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'd probably say Oli Hines. Probably like, probably, he started training as a Manchester a bit and his hair, he just let his hair grow so long it was just a bit, a bit did, he, did he go for the mullet, did he not? Or did he just... Oh. It was lockdown, long, yeah. lockdown mullets were definitely the thing. Who is the biggest natural athlete you had? Like in the pool, like somebody that's just you know they're just like an engine. Like you're doing you're doing conditioning and they just don't stop. Stephanie Firth. Really, she just goes for goes for hours. Yeah. I'm jealous. I'm sure jealous. Never like there's some athletes that just remoan and will like fake their goggles breaking so they can like take a break and stuff. She's never done that. Just straight on it. Does exactly what needs to be done. I'm still jealous of her aptitude. <laughs> <laughs> Who has the best tunes? Like when you're on the team bus going to the meet, who's who's playing the tunes? So it, it was, it's probably not really now. Now there's a lot of questionable tunes, but it was Ollie before he retired. Ollie Hind had the best tunes, but it was it was a lot of Bieber. So it was some, sometimes questionable, but now it's like people like to play like heavy metal and country, and I'm just like no. I get on board with country. I don't know if I need heavy metal on the team bus. Yeah, not, country in the not gym. Really music. Oh, tell you, I'll send you about six songs that will change your mind. <laughs> Like Luke Combs, "Cold Beer Never Broke My Heart." That will that will get you there. Like that's like especially like if you're ever going through a breakup, you play that song. You're like as like what is it? What's it people say like oh you're in like hot barrel era or whatever it's called. That's what you are by the end of it. That's okay. that's how it goes. That's that's my advice to you. Luke Combs, "Cold Beer Never Broke My Heart." Last one. Who hogs the mirror the most after the meet? Like who knows they've got their big BBC interview coming up and they're taking like making sure every hair is okay in the mirror, making sure. There's definitely a few. There's a few of them. Okay. Uh, I don't think Tom's as bad. Tom used to be really bad. Tom Hamer is not as bad. Zach Washington Young, uh, Ellie Chalice, uh, Jess Applegate. Honestly, there's loads. Like pretty much all the girls on like half the girls on the team. (laughs) A few of the lads. Fair play. That is the end of Under the Team Bus. You've you've absolutely smashed it. You gave some great answers there. Now, before I let you get on your way. The final segment is all we have to get through now. But this one's nice and easy. I gave you time for this one before you came on. You've just won, I don't know at this point, your 800th gold medal, your 900th gold medal. You've broken your own world record for the 400th time and you did this with blindfolds on just for a bit of a challenge. But you've now going to celebrate. You have to pick three songs to get the rest of the team ready for the night out and feeling groovy. What three songs are you picking and why? Well, to be honest... I wouldn't care as much about the rest of the team. It'd be more like what I want to, like after, like, you know, like celebration songs. Yeah, well, quite, yeah, quite right. That's that's how it should be. <laughs> so one is I'm obsessed with McFly and Busted, but I like right. like a celebration song is this is like happiness. Happiness mm-hmm. is like one of their newer songs, and that's like I, I think that's just you know it has to be. Um, another one is Reach for the Stars by uh, S Club. S Club. <laughs> Me and my friend, so my friend uh, used to be a swimmer. She was a mm-hmm. learned disabled swimmer in S14. Went into athletics, but she developed dystonia. Okay. So she actually has both shoulders fused. So both of us used to sing and dance to this, and neither of us can reach above shoulder heights. We used to do a little, <laughs> like, a little dance and be like, reach, because like, we can't reach above our head. And like, it was kind of hilarious. So it's just like, that's always my go-to like celebration <laughs> song. Now, it's just, we envision like, um, all of her sisters say like, they and like our friends say they can't listen to that song without just bursting out laughing because of our little dance because they can't reach for head. <laughs> so that's that true. that has to be like a celebration song. I love that. So we've got Happiness by Busted Slash McFly, Reach for the Stars by S Club. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I'd probably go High Hopes. From uh, Panic at Disco? Yeah. Great song. I love that song. There you You're go. kind of like happy positivity. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I'll leave that. I'd be ready for a night out after that. You smashed it, especially S Club. Yeah. <laughs> you smashed it. Right. Before, uh, before we get on your way, Tully, where can my wonderful, lovely listeners follow you to keep up with your story as it unfolds? Uh, so either on Twitter or Instagram. Instagram is at Tully underscore Kearney and Twitter is just at Tully Kearney. Amazing. And all those links will be in the description of this YouTube video, of this audio platform, Spotify, Apple, you name it. Now all that we need to do is you lovely listeners, share it, tell your friends. This is brand new rebrand, so I need to get myself out there, get people to recognize the name. Allows me to get brilliant guests on, like Tully here. I've had the most wonderful time. Like I said, share, tell your mum, tell your dog, tell your dad, tell your brother, tell anybody. So somebody you walk past in the street go, I had a great podcast with Tully Kearney MBE last night. You should listen to it too. Thank you guys so much. This is going to be another series, 10 episodes weekly, starting from today, 10 weeks. Wonderful variety of guests, everyone. I gave you the sneak peek that Gregor Swinney is going to be on here soon, so you're going to have to listen out for that if you want to hear about how the butterfly should be done without somebody that fuses both their shoulders and decides they're still going to try it. I am so thankful for you all. Tully Kearney, MBE, this has been truly inspirational. Thank you guys so much for listening. Goodbye.